Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Fishing and Arisia and Woody Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the irredeemable Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.com. How you doing, buddy? I am very excited about this month's uh, episode. I considered coming in with a maniacal <laughs> laugh, but I, I can't pull it. I can't do a Mark Hamill maniacal laugh. You know, you already do, do a really good dark side. I think it's asking a little much for you to have a joker in your hip pocket. Like <laughs> and there you go, folks. There's your leadoff. Yes, folks, we are back for Who's Who, and it is time for some J's. So... Uh, some we, eyes too. That's why that was my that eyes. was my joke. Huh? That's why I leaned on the eye. I'm really excited. Oh, that's brilliant! See, See, it's so subtle. As Johnny Carson said, if you have to explain it, it's not funny. Well, it's true anyway. But all uh, right. Well, of course it was. <laughs> yes, you knew so, what he was talking about. We are going to cover Who's Who, Volume Number Eleven. So, folks, sit your wayback machine to October tenth, nineteen eighty-five. That's going to be the date that this book hit the shelves. And uh, just to give you a little rundown here, if this is your first time listening to one of our Who's Who podcasts, and I know those of you who do listen to this often have heard me say this a million times, but you know what? We got to be nice to the newbies. We got to let the new guys in. You know. Anyway. This thing, Who's Who, was a 26-issue series, and it was celebrating the 50th anniversary of DC Comics. It ran parallel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. In fact, when this issue was on the stands, Crisis on Infinite Earths number 10 was also on the shelves, which is an important, important thing. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. <laughs> uh, who's Who is an alphabetical listing of, all the, uh, of the major players of the DC Universe, and we are on, as we said, letters I and J this time around. On the cover, you get this incredible jam cover with all the characters packed together, doing some crazy wackiness. Inside, you get uh, a page-by-page breakdown of characters. So you might have an entire page dedicated to a character or a team or whatever, and it gives you, whether it be their history or their personal information like alter egos, occupations, marital status, first appearance, height, weight, all that jazz. It tells you about their powers, and then you get a really neat artistic shot. they got a whole wide variety of artists to do this book from all walks of life, which is one of the greatest things about the series is that every issue you pick up, you get a ton of different art. I mean, almost 30 different artists, and it's just beautiful stuff, always. Um, one of the neat trademarks is in the front, you get a foreground in full-color character. In the background, you get a single-color design. We call it, pretty much incorrectly, surprint, um, but we're going to keep doing it anyway. Uh, and in the surprint, you get sort of a, a look at what the character looks like without their mask, and it kind of gives you an idea of what's going on with the character. Maybe it's uh, pictures from their history or something about their origin using their power. It gives you a sense for the character. So, uh, And then one thing I always got to mention are the yellow bubbles. Going around the edge of the border is this really interesting transition pattern. It goes from yellow to white using a, a bubble matrix and or a bubble dot matrix kind of thing, and it is to represent the color printing process, and thank you to the late, great Neil Posner for that. Absolutely. 
<laughs> uh, now, if this is your first time here in the past, I've always said uh, it's a little hard to find old episodes of this show. Well, that is not the case anymore. If you're looking for old episodes of the Who's Who podcast, just go to our iTunes feed. They're all there now. Um, Stitcher we as well. They're on Stitcher Sti- as well. That's absolutely true. We had a problem for a while there. All that's fixed. All of our episodes are there. So if this is your first episode, feel free to hit pause. Go back and listen to the first one. We'll wait. You are blowing my mind. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, uh, who's who? Well, before we start that, we should pay some bills. I, I so want to do that. I really do. <laughs> I am so excited about that, folks. Yes, uh, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping for $50 or more. So I know you got a, you zeroed in on a good book. What'd you, what are you looking at? Yeah, well, related to this issue's uh, Who's Who, and the main character is, of course, the Joker. Uh, so I've picked something Joker-centric, which is Batman in the 60s, uh, trade paperback, of course, featuring Batman stories from the 60s, as the title suggests. Uh, let me just... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't, wow. they didn't fool you, yeah. I mean, it was like, you open the inside, and it's Batman from the 90s. What's going on? Uh, here's the description. Mirroring the era in which they were written and took place, the stories collected in this trade paperback alternate from outrageously offbeat to completely realistic. Yeah, completely. The dynamic duo is joined by Batgirl and Batmite as they go up against some of Batman's most classic foes, including the Joker, Clayface, Poison Ivy, and Blockbuster, including a gatefold map of the 60s version of the Batcave. This book also features an introduction by the man who played Batman on TV during the same time period, Adam West. Amazing. Woo! In Suck Trades is uh, well. The regular price is nineteen ninety five. In Suck Trades is selling it for only ten dollars and ninety seven cents, forty five percent off. Yes, that is a great deal. This is a super super fun book. Great cover by Murphy Anderson, and it's very reminiscent of the of the um, TV series of Batman and Robin running at you at full speed. Super super fun book. That's a that's a Jokerific steal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work. Oh well. All right. Another issue, another book uh, relevant to this issue is Infinity Inc. That's right. I, we said we had some eyes in here. Infinity Inc. Hardcover, Volume One: The Generations Saga. Now, uh, if you're familiar with Infinity Inc., you know that there it was sort of a spinoff book of All Star Squadron, and that's the kind of stuff that's going to be in this book. You're going to find Infinity Inc. One through Four. You're going to get a couple issues of All Star Squadron, an annual, and it gives you the introduction of all these characters that became so integral to the DC universe. I mean, they went on to become you know, obviously in this series, they're part of Crisis. They became a huge part of the Justice League and Justice Society, you know, in the 2000s. And Nuclon went on to become a, a very important character in the DC Universe. Obsidian, Jade, Huntress, Power Girl, all these are major players. And check out the, the creative team here. You get Roy Thomas, Dan Thomas, you know that's good, folks. Our team, Jerry Ordway. Yay. Jerry above reproach Ordway. <laughs> Tony Desenica. I can never say Desenica. Bless you. Uh, Don Newton, Todd McFarlane, and more. So this sucker's 192 pages. It's full color. Normal price is $39.99. It is a hardcover. You get it through in-stock trades. You get it for $21.99. 45% off, folks. Now, remember, if you order um, over um, $50 or more, you get free shipping as well. So... Please visit InStockTrades.com. Again, best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions. Yay. Woohoo! All right. So, uh, yeah, I got a little ahead of myself. Now! Now! <laughs> we're going to talk about 
Who's Who, the Definitive Directory of the DC Universe, Volume 11, cover dated January 1986. I know we already mentioned it, but again, on the shelves on October 17th, 1985. And the cover is a very explosive jam cover by Paris Collins and Dick Giordano. And the way these covers work, it's, it's a double spread. So if you think about it the way it sits on a comic book shelf, the right-hand side of the drawing really is what's facing out. That's the quote-unquote front of the comic. And really the characters featured very prominently here are Invisible Destroyer, um, uh, all right, I'm kidding. All right, Joker. <laughs> I mean, he is pretty prominent. I'm sitting but... here listening to this. I'm like, is he serious about that? <laughs> you get the Joker, obviously, a major player in the Batman universe. You get Jade, at this point, major player in Infinity, Inc., which was a team book. You get Jericho, major player in New Teen Titans, unfortunately. You get uh, Invisible Kid and Dead Invisible Kid, uh, major characters from Legion of Superheroes. These are all really hot-selling books for DC at the time. So, you know, you really they really led with the best possible characters. You don't have a marquee character like Batman or Superman. No, we've, we've talked about that previous issues, that some issues are sort of like off-brand issues, that they just don't have a big, big star. And clearly, for this issue, Joker is their only star, really. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the only character anybody on a newsstand will have heard of. I mean, exactly. and, uh, Infinity Inc. was a big book, but uh, that was on a newsstand book, so. Yep, and, and even and New Teen Titans was probably their number one book, but it's, but it's Jericho. <laughs> so, anyway, wow. uh, it, you know, I gotta say, for a mishmash listing of characters, I really like this issue. I think it's a good one. So, anyway, uh, well, Rob, you know, I've, I've been jibber jabbering. What, what, what attracts your eye? What's the first thing that attracts your eye to this cover? Well, I, I mean, you know, uh, unlike we mentioned this before, I mean, unlike the George Perez covers, which were a little more um, abstract. The characters were different sizes, and they didn't really relate, to, really relate to one another. The Paris Collins covers are of a piece. I mean, all these characters are interacting in the same space with one another. Um, they're blasting from the boom tube, which we could see um, Infinity Man is in front of, and everybody's leaping out of it, or in the case of Infinite Man, behind it. So this is, you know, a real cover. I like that the guy, the jester guy back there, is flailing his hands wildly. I don't really know why, but he is. Um, and uh, uh, he's just like, Wah! um, and Jem, son of Saturn, is grabbing Johnny Thunder. I don't, he looks like he's apprehending him, he's not. I don't know why exactly. But well, I think Johnny can't fly, I guess so. so but I mean, just the pose, he looks like he's, it doesn't look like he's carrying. That's like true, he does grabbing. look apprehended. Absolutely but Johnny true. Thunder's a giant dick, so I'm totally okay with that. Oh my god, he is. I hate Johnny Thunder. Um, save, save it for the episode. <laughs> well, this is the episode. What are we doing? Well, I mean, save it for his entry. So. Well, I'll, all right, I'll say it again when he when I get there. Uh, and I like uh, Johnny Double back there behind the Joker's shoulder, looking very smart with his little gun cocked, and he's uh, kind of got that little flashy grin. I like that too. So, I mean, Johnny Peril? Oh, Johnny! Johnny, wait a minute. Is it Johnny Double or Johnny? Oh, it is Johnny it's Peril. Johnny. Johnny Double's not in this book. That's, I don't even know who that is. So he's a showcase character, and he came back later in Crisis and in Wonder Woman and stuff. So he's, he's and uh, he was in the book Cobra, the short-lived Cobra book. So that's a, he should have oh. been in here. He got his own. Yeah, that's, I, I just realized that. Well, forget this whole pod. Forget it. That's it. I managed this series. <laughs> Podcast is over. Like, this is over. <laughs> The, the couple things that attract my attention, you mentioned the boom tube with Infinity Man, which is pretty cool. It's kind of nice they're all coming out of there. But the Infinite Man in the background is almost Galactus-like in the way he appears here. I mean, he's so big and he's so, you know, energizing and he's got a pink headpiece. You know, it's like, wow, it reminds me a lot of Galactus, which is kind of cool. 
And uh, obviously Joker plays a role and it is important for the cover. But these are starting now. We've had several Paris Collins and they're starting to remind me more and more of Marvel Universe covers where the Marvel Universe covers were always like people were all traveling to the right. I don't know if you remember the Marvel Universe yeah, covers Yeah, well, they, they were meant to be one giant poster. Right, which they never produced and no kid would tape to their wall. But anyway, uh, these are starting to like – if you look at last month's and look at this month's, it's starting to remind me like all the characters are sort of moving towards the right slowly. Last issue was a little more to the right, but I mean they're all moving that direction. And it's like, ah, I wonder if we're starting to get into a Marvel Universe habit. Because you're right, when, when George Perez drew it, there was a lot more interaction between the characters. It's almost like, almost like every character had some interaction with another character. Here, it's they're all kind of in the same space. So I think it, I think the inferior five are having the most fun out of all of them. Um, As usual. They're just yeah, they're just like white feathers actually riding the shoulders of the other guy, which cracks me up. Now the insect queen really is freaking me out. How she's like half insect. That is crazy. Uh, yeah, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah. And so, do you think Invisible Kid is there and translucent and you know opaque because he's Invisible Kid or because he's dead? Uh, can it be both? Ooh, good answer. Good answer. Lock it in. Lock it in. And I really wish Jonah Hex had been Jonah Hex and not Hex on the cover. I, I agree with that. <laughs> but that aside from my little silly nitpicks, this is a really nice cover. This is probably, as far as solid artwork, uh, this is probably one of the better ones we've had in the last few months. Okay. Um, I, I, there's certainly areas I can see where maybe some of the uh, fine detail could have been in a little clearer. But overall, I, I think it's a nice, clean cover with a lot of kind of boring characters. But <laughs> I still like it. All right? Yeah. Rock on. So uh, opening up the issue. Okay, here's – we're going to get into the description in just a second, but I got to mention this. I said in the opening we're going to talk about it. At the same time that this book is on the shelf in October of two, 1985, so it was Crisis on Infinite Earths number 10. That's important. You at home. Can you tell me why? You're correct. Thank you, Cisco and Uh Crisis at Infinite Earth number ten was where everything changed. Whole DC, and I said this last month. I'll say it again. Spoiler. Sorry. Thirty years late. The entire DC universe, all the multiverses, were destroyed, and it was recreated as one single universe. So, just a couple of weeks prior to that happened, this issue will acknowledge that. They actually, they are in some of the entries, they talk about alternate timelines that don't exist anymore. So from here on out, things are going to get a little strange with some of our entries of Earth 1 and Earth 2, or they're just going to avoid mentioning Earth 1 or Earth 2. Um, should be interesting to see it as we go through, you know? That, that, that sound you hear is a tear coming out of my eye. Aww. Really? Yeah, I liked Earth. I liked the whole Earth, different Earth concepts. I, I, I was a kid. I was a wee kid. And I could follow it, so I never bought the argument that it's too confusing. I'm like, no, it's not. Have <laughs> like, <laughs> I ever told? Uh, go ahead. I was kind of a dumb kid. I could follow it. <laughs> was. Um, did I ever tell you uh, how I came into the DC Comics with Crisis? Uh, I think so, but I don't know. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'll just keep it real short in case I've said it before. I, I, I'm probably said it on Fire Water before. Anyway, I jumped in feet first. Uh, I re- was reading a few DC comics, but I jumped in feet first with Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven and eight, and I mean, kind of, kind of important issues to read too, yeah. you know. And I sat there and made these little lists 
and I would have columns. There'd be an Earth 1 column, an Earth 2 column, an Earth 3 column, Earth S, Earth X. And I would sit there, and every time a character they'd say where he's from, I'd add him to the list. So I could always go back and look and, and make sense of it because that was my type A personality coming out at, you know, what, 13 years old. <laughs> I love that image of just this little little kid version of Shag making these lists. That just cracks me up. I wish we had them nowadays. They're, they're probably in a binder somewhere. Oh, you got to dig them up. you got to put them on a Tumblr at some point. If I can find it, I will. If I can find it, I will. All right. So on the letters page, he got a really kind of interesting letter from Conrad Felber, uh, who's five foot two and proud of it. Mm-hmm. He he wrote an extensive letter talking about how all the guys in the book were six feet tall, um, and all the girls, none of them were shorter than five feet. And he said the average American height for a male is five foot nine, and the average American female height is five foot three. And apparently, he had already written a nasty gram like this to Marvel Comics about their Marvel <laughs> Handbook, and now DC is getting that treatment. So it's just, it, it honestly, it makes for an interesting read, and made a lot of sense. I did think about, it. I'm like, huh, that makes a good, that makes a good point. There's a lot of tall people in the DC universe, and I think this issue you start to see there's some changes to that, but uh, just kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting stuff. I feel compelled to point out the uh, the, the other letter from Kent Mc- Kevin McCune. Yeah. Uh, not because he says this. Also, when talking about the gang, you said they were hired by a group called the Council. Then I saw a statement. See the Council. When I looked it up, I could not find it. The closest I came was Count Vertigo. So a not only is Kevin McCune not very observant, <laughs> the damn thing was there. This has got to be the only kid that ever gave two dams about the gang and the Council. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were created by Paul Kupperberg, and I don't think he cares about the gang and the council. This is the this kid was actually upset that the gang slash the council did not get, in his eyes, did not get two separate listings. So I have to know: Are you just trying to bait Ange, or are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> but, you know, you know, he's crying right no, now. No, but I mean, Ange iPhone. I know, but I mean, it's still Ange has to admit that. Come on. Yeah. Absolutely true. Uh, they do address the super friends in here. That bugged me too. What's that? That bugged me too because when Len Wein says because Wendy Marvin and the Wonder Twins only appeared in Super Friends, they will not appear in this series. That drove me nuts. It's like it's a book you published. It, it and not only did you publish it, it featured your marquee characters. Why why don't they get listings? That felt so silly to me to like just say, well, you know, the no Super Friends only characters will appear in here. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I, if this hadn't come up in the letters, and I hadn't tried to pull this joke a couple months ago with Gleek, uh, I was actually going to, as we go through this fake a Jan entry. Um, oh, I'm sorry. And, uh, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't prep for it, so, but I was going to totally try and do that, and uh, yeah. But they, it, it's more important they mention it here, and it is addressed, no super friends except for Guardians of the Gal- uh, Gar- Gar- Global Guardians. So. Right, because they popped out outside the book eventually, but it, it just seems silly to me. That, I mean, what? I mean, the, this is 1985. The super friends were still in the air. I mean, the Wonder Twins weren't on the show anymore, but still, they were pretty famous. It just seems silly to not put them on here. To give them a, I mean, you know, geez. Actually, this would be the last season. Uh, yeah, right. you're right. You're right. Actually, interestingly enough, this book hit the shelves. When the last season was starting to wind down already. Right. Right. And the, and the, wow. the Wonder Twins were long gone from the show at that point. But still, it just seems silly to me. That, That's that just weird to think about. about. Wow. Super Friends was pretty much at the end. Oh, that makes me sad. Anyway, um, th- th- we get a pronunciation guide for this issue, which is I've nice. I've been mispronouncing Hoongen all this time. It's, I know. It's Houngen. Oh, it is Houngen, isn't it? It is. Look at that. Now, I was going to say, it is legit. Hippolyta. 
There it is, folks. Thank you. It's in there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Not Hippolyta, as some people have pointed out in our theme songs. Is, you know what? We don't care. It's uh, it's cute. We like it that way. <laughs> yeah. And the song, the song absolutely rocks. It's by, by the way, I don't think we've mentioned it in a while. It's always in our show notes. But it's by um, Daniel uh, Cynical Adams and Ashton Burge of the Bad Mamma Jammas. I love yes, our opening theme. custom who's who song. Dude, couldn't get any better. So, also, uh, under the credits, did you notice anything under the credits? Uh, the fact that there are names? Yes, there are names. There. Ah, excellent. You're incredibly observant. Thank you. What you failed to notice, sir, is that there's one person missing. Brenda Pope. <gasps> Brenda Pope, proofreader. The one, Never mind Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and Robert Greenberger and Mike Barr and Gary Cohn and Paul Levitz and E. Nelson Bridewell and Peter Sanderson and Todd Klein that we okay, didn't okay. mention. All right, all right, all right. Now look at the whole list. The only ones we focus on is Brenda Pope. Proofreader on the edge because she's unsung. <laughs> I, so I'm wondering. I'm, I, I don't want to sneak a peek ahead. I want to wait and see. I want to see if she's back next month. I want to see if they, she just had to take a vacation or something, <sighs> or if they decided, you know what, screw it. None of the, half these things aren't even real words. We don't need a proofreader. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive right in. Okay. Here we go. First one. Icicle. Dun 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 dun. This is a JSA villain. Uh, going way back to All American Comics number ninety, obviously ice based powers. Doctor, wow, how do you say this? Hormacant? I don't even know. Mm. Yeah, that's a tough one, even for somebody who knows how to pronounce things. Anyway, uh, the art is by Paris Cullens and Carl Kiesel. So right out of the gate, you know you have a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. It's kind of interesting. It's almost, um, you know, it's. Not monochromatic, well, because you got black too. Du- duochromatic, you know, you got blue and black, and that's pretty much all you get in here because it's cold powers. So, nice shot of Icicle in the foreground. It's not, it, it wasn't always my favorite costume design at this point, but if you really look at the nice flourishes and touches that Paris Collins and Carl Kiesel put into the actual artwork, it's really a nice, nice piece. And then, of course, the serpent is gorgeous. They've got this really neat pattern going all the way around of uh, ice crystals sort of creeping in from the edges of the artwork the whole way. You get this nice close-up shot of this, you know, Euro trash doctor who's... Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. Of, he's not... He's not, Euro, he's not Euro trash, but <laughs> he's trash from Europe. How's that? Okay. Like Euro trash is... A specific thing. <laughs> it's, it's true. Okay. So anyway, but he's uh, he's this, you know, bespeckled German-looking sort of scientist. Well, I kind of say this. I don't know much about this character other than his brief appearances in JLA where he was a member of the Injustice Gang or whatever, Injustice yeah. Society. But in his uh, civilian identity, he looks a lot like Boris Karloff to me as Boris mm. Karloff. And his first appearance is in All-American Comics number 90, which would have been in the late 40s, and that was when yep. Boris Karloff was a big, big star. So mm. uh, Dr. Boris Karloff played a lot of mad scientists. You know, So I okay. have to think that, that if, if Paris Collins... Uh, was taking this visual look from the character's previous established appearances. I don't know whether he did or not. I, I would bet that this was based off of someone on Karloff, because to me it looks a lot like him. That's a very interesting observation. Not one I would have made, so I totally would buy into that. Okay. Now, by the way, Carl, as I said, um, Paris Collins and Carl Kiesel did this art. As far as I'm able to tell, they're not really connected to the character in any other way. So they were just selected to do this one because they rock all the all the world. They're just that good. So that's kind of where I'm taking from that. A couple of interesting things about this. There's, there's a couple of really, uh, there's one, one particularly odd thing in here where in his origin, he talks about how 
he used his freeze ray to disguise a victim's face. <laughs> I don't understand that. <laughs> I, I miss maybe he messed up the face so it couldn't be recognized. I'm not really sure. Either way, an uh, important thing to note here. Recently, the Ice Skull met his death during the so-called Crisis on Infinite Earths when he and several other supervillains attempted to invade the laboratory of the renegade Owen named Corona. Wow, look at that. Now, and, and that makes a little more sense to me because the Ice Skull I'm more familiar with is his son. So, like, when I started, I'm like, oh, Ice Skull! And I started reading, I'm like, I don't know any of this history. What? Well, what? What? And then I realized, oh, I know Junior. So, but uh, neat stuff, great artwork. Fun entry, and this is an important character. I mean, he's in, in, in Injustice Society of the World and Crimes Champions. You know, the guy's got, he's got street cred. So, respect, respect the ice skull. <laughs> that was a stretch. Okay. Yes, it was. <laughs> Next up, Immortal Man by Dennis Cohen and Eduardo Barreto. Uh, now, again, looking it up, as far as I can tell, this is their only connection to this character as well. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with this character, this character is Doctor Who. Um, he uh, he regenerates <laughs> every time he dies. He comes back with a new body, and uh, it's very much like the Doctor in Regeneration, which I found very interesting. But more importantly, you need to know that this character is tied directly to Vandal Savage. So when Vandal Savage was a primitive man, and the meteor came to Earth, that same meteor that, that made him, you know, immortal gave this gentleman his powers as well, which allowed him the ability to, to gain a new body every time he dies. So, uh, and he, basically, Immortal Man and Vandal Savage are eternally locked in battle and uh, will always face each other once again. And this goes all the way back to Strange Adventures number 177. And he was also a member of the Forgotten Heroes. Now, let's talk about the art. Uh, Dennis Cohen and Eduardo Barreto. The, the foreground image is fairly simple. It's almost like a James Bond tuxedo look, and he's holding up the, the magical pendant crystal thing. Yeah, it's very striking. Yeah, and you can't see his face, which is sort of clever. Uh, it's all in shadows and, and bright sort of light, like the light's too bright, blocking out his face. But the background, they have drawn, good lord, what is this, 30 little faces? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just really neat, uh, all the little faces they did and the different looks and everything, and uh, it's an impressive design. Yeah, uh, the only thing I don't like about it at all is, is the logo. I feel like uh, whoever was doing the logos, I think it was Todd Klein. Maybe the, he, he couldn't have been just him, but Ty, I felt like uh, Todd Klein was about to go to lunch, and somebody's like, "Dude, we need an Immortal Man logo." He's like, "Oh crap! All right, here, here, and here it is." I choose to believe that it, it it's an old logo from an, a previous run of his in comics. I, I okay. gotta think because okay. it's just so boring yeah that it's, yep. it's like you're like oh it's well I'll just type immortal man and i'll just drag the the first three letters down a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> so I, I gotta think that it's existing from a previous thing so also worth mentioning we're starting a trend here in the recent crisis in infinite earth immortal man used his life energy to save the earth but lost his life now seems to make no sense by, by definition, I think that just means he's going to come back, right? I mean, he's, he, that's kind of his gig. He dies and comes back. But Anyway, next up is a group that I've never actually read about, but I've always wanted to, and this is really inspiring me to want to read about now, The Inferior Five. <laughs> These guys are a hoot. Artwork by Joe Orlando, which, by the way, he is the original artist who drew Inferior Five all the way back in showcase number 62. And it features all five of the members. You get Awkward Man, 
who looks a bit like a Batman sort of character. You get Blimp, which is, uh, what's the politically correct word? A, um... He's a big old fat dude. Yeah, that's the politically correct way to say it. Very good. Uh, also, and he flies. And the next character is Dumb Bunny. She's <laughs> a beautiful blonde who's not so, uh, graced in the smarts department, but graced in other attributes. Merry Man, who looks like an accountant wearing a jester costume. And the White Feather. And, uh, this five, five group of people, uh, it's a, it's a comedy series. It's almost like, if you read this, it reminds me a lot of the Mad Magazine stuff you used to see when they do, like, a superhero parody oh, or something. sure, or, sure, sure, yeah. I mean, it really sounds like it reads that way. There's some really good stuff in here, like, uh, they have a, uh, was it the lukewarm line instead of the red line or the hot line? And, and these characters are essentially the children of other existing superheroes. And they don't, I mean, the superheroes that they're children of are original characters like Princess Power, but I mean, and, and her lover, and her, her longtime love, Steve Tremor. Okay, clearly that's Wonder Woman to Steve Trevor. You know, so as you get a bunch of characters, it's that, you, you can really tell who they're supposed to be connected to. And uh, it's just, it's it looks really funny to me. Okay. <laughs> wow, that, that's all you got on that? I like the artwork a lot. I'm, I'm a fan of Joe Orlando's. It's a great piece. But but I just found, even as a kid, I found the stuff so forced that <laughs> I was just like, Oh, was it? Was yeah, it? Uh, okay. And so this this doesn't make me want to get it. <laughs> but it's a nice drawing. It's a nice drawing. I like their logo. I love the little shanty town in the background. So, you know, great piece. And it was nice that they got Orlando kind of, out of quasi-retirement. He was an editor at DC Comics, but he was mostly retired from drawing at this point. So it was great that they got him to come back and do it. It's a, Again, it's a nice piece, but, you know, characters don't do anything for me. Okay. Although I have to say, not surprising, Dumb Bunny, she's hot. So. <laughs> really? You're going to huff at that? Are you really surprised? No, not really. Uh, that's all right. <laughs> okay. Let me have my vi- small victories where I can. Next up... The Infinite Man. Now, this is really an interesting costume design. Art by Greg LaRock and Larry Maltstead. And this is a Legion of Superheroes villain. And appeared in Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 233. And he actually appeared in the Legion... I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. Like, Greg LaRock drew this character the same month this Who's Who issue was on the shelf in Legion. So Greg's doing the here entry in Who's Who. Meanwhile, he's drawing the art the same month in the actual book. So that's a very nice sort of uh, dynamic, and well, it worked out well with the publication style. I love the design of the costume. I love the colors. It's very much a cosmic-level-looking dude, and uh, sort of a, you know, one of those things where you absorb a bunch of power, and then your consciousness goes too big, and you become omniscient kind of thing. That's really where this kind of character goes. So it, I don't know if the story read good, but the art looks Awesome. Yeah, it's a nice piece. Nice, unusual colors. Uh, it's a you know, very attractive piece. Yep. And anything that gets uh, mentions Ron Vidar gets a vote, gets my vote. I've always, that's a, you wouldn't know who that is because you hate the Legion. I do. I, I hate everything about it. So, yeah, I'm just tuning out on this list. <laughs> and, trend, during the recent crisis on Infinite Earth, the Infinite Man found himself able to utilize energies released by the Anti-Monitor to free himself. In the resulting battle of the Legion, those energies in the ones that originally turned Rungath into the Infinite Man were stripped from him, and he was returned to normal. Boy, I hope that didn't spoil the comic that's on the shelf that month. Sounds like it did. Next up, folks, here is one of your marquee entries of the, of the, of the issue, Infinity, Inc. 
by Jerry above reproach Ordway. <laughs> we got to work on that. <laughs> I kind of like it. Okay. Anyway, it's a it's a it's a nice, if not cramped, piece. Very cramped. Very yeah. Cramped. It, it doesn't feel claustrophobic, but it looks almost like it was intended to be a two-page spread and got shrunk down. That's kind of what I feel like it looks like. They, they, they feel crammed in on the page. You get all the characters of Brainwave Jr., Fury, Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, Silver Scarab, and Star Spangled Kid. To prove exactly how cramped it is, they actually had to make Nuclon's uh, mohawk shorter just so he could fit in the little heads on the right-hand <laughs> side. Now, uh... There's a lot to talk about here. <laughs> I mean, their, their first appearance is All-Star Squadron number 25, which you know that means it's good news. Their origin is tied very deeply in with the uh, J- the All-Star Squadron and the JSA, and including the Ultra Humanite. You know, a couple different things to mention. One important, important, important thing is that there is thankfully no mention of the Helix in here. Yay. And second, you know, I didn't. I guess I didn't think about it this way until the other day. There were two Earth Two books on the shelf at the time. To- at this time, that just blows my mind because when I was coming up, I came up after uh, you know Crisis Time, and you know All Star Squadron was on its way out. Young All Stars, regardless of how many issues it published, it never caught on. So, and Infinity Inc. fizzled out pretty quick too. So, f- for the large part of my collecting uh, of all through the '90s, there were no. JSA or Earth Two books out there for the, for the most part. You got the you got a couple things here and there. You had the you know the ten issue Mike Paraback series things like that. But for the most part, the JSA and Earth Two were completely ignored. And it wasn't until the two thousands when the JSA comic took off that we got that, that these characters got any respect. So again, for the large part of my collecting, J, the JSA was like something that you liked that nobody was reading because there was nothing out on the market. And here at this point, there were two books on the shelves. That blew my mind. Now, right now, we have one book on the shelf, Earth 2, and we sort of have one with World's Finest, but still, it's, it's not the same. No, it's not the same thing. Yeah, but it's, it's neat. So Now, are you a big Infinity Inc. guy? Were you following Yeah, I like this book. I, I, I was a huge fan of All-Star Squadron, and I completely bought into Infinity Inc. and followed that book. Um, I, I started losing focus sometime in, like, the 20s. I think, I think, but around whenever it is McFarland took over, I just started being getting like, whoa, boy. Um, in the late late teens, I believe. Okay, late teens. Yeah, well, all right, then that would be about right. But boy, the first ten of these were really good. And in this listing, it mentions the um, the stream of ruthlessness, which was one of Roy Thomas's like most ingenious concepts to me, which basically just turned the heroes bad, and it led to a great issue where. Um, uh, Power Girl has to fight Superman, and Superman lunges, leans over Power Girl, and just punches her in the face. Oh my <laughs> Which gosh. is one of the great all-time images because you never really got to see, you know, Superman do anything like that. And he he's got her on the ground. He's leaning over her, and he clasps both his hands over his head and just smashes them onto her face. <laughs> oh my gosh! That was a great issue. It was you're just. You know, it was like you never got to see that. And it was all drawn by by Jerry Ordway, who was fantastic. So yeah, I I'm, I was a big fan of this book. I said I lost touch over a while, and I got confused when Neil Gaiman brought in some of the characters, sort of to that continuity. But um, but uh, yeah, no. In the beginning, I was a big fan. It's got some nice costume designs. I like Silver Scarab's design. I, I never really warmed to Northwind, but I like his look. I think it was designed well. You know, you get. 
Jade looks pretty cool. Now, Brave Wayne Jr. is just a readaptation of a costume from the 70s, right. so you can't really do that. But And Nuclon was always interesting with sort of the black bubbly thing. Now, by the way, with Jade, we're going to talk about this later when we get to her. Well, I guess we'll talk about it now, but Jade's costume design, you know, what is it with girls in Earth 2 and boob windows? What is, what is that about? She doesn't have a peek. Oh, I guess she does because her skin oh, she does. is green. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh. So her and Power Girl both got boob windows. I mean, I'm not complaining, <laughs> but I'm just saying apparently in, in Earth 2, that's a thing. I'm guessing that the Jade costume was an homage to Power Girl's costume, which was so famous for having that. I guess it could have been, although Power Girl was on the team, too, after a short period mm-hmm. of time. So, you know, Star Spangled Kid really sticks out like a sore thumb. It's probably a good move that they eventually moved him to Skyman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they changed his costume and all that stuff. They changed his costume and then killed him almost right away. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, thanks for that. So, anyway, Infinity Inc., very exciting, good stuff. Marquee uh, one, and again, Jerry Ordway, just beautiful. So, I, I, folks, I can guarantee you this one's going up on our Tumblr. So, okay, uh, by the way, I didn't mention that earlier. Every every issue um, we cover, we put about ten or twelve different images from the Who's Who comic up on our Tumblr. So you can go out there if you don't have the issue, you can check them out. Uh, our goal here, obviously, is is to go through the book in such a way that you don't have to have the issue in front of you because we want you to be able to be you know driving a car, doing whatever. We don't want you to you know. I don't know, to be driving a car trying to flip through the comic and get in a wreck and kill yourself. That's not the idea we want to do. So uh, we try and describe it the best we can. And then if you want, go out and visit the Tumblr and check them out, a couple of them out. And, Rob, what's that Tumblr address? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. There you go. Next page, really a continuation from the previous one, Infinity Incorporated Headquarters. First appearance, All-Star Comics number 44, which tells us that this is actually a location from... The old school series, if issue 44, that's probably what, on the cusp of the 1950s? Uh, I don't even think All-Star, All-Star Comics made it into the 50s, so it's probably late 40s. What are you talking about? It made it to 67. No, it didn't. Yeah, yeah it did. The, the, he... Oh, the numbers you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Oh, 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 oh. But oh, they brought yeah, it back in the numbers. 70s. Right. So you said you didn't make it this right so i'm saying this would be like in the 50s oh i meant i meant the 1950s I, that's I, what i meant this would have been in the 1950s okay right? i don't believe so i believe i don't oh. think that all star comics made it into the 1950s i see okay i thought it made it into the first few years it doesn't either way okay we're so getting, we're talking yeah, really late in 40s. the weeds here <laughs> yep sorry it's our our passion for the jsa is pretty deep so uh, anyway so yeah this would have been the first premiere in the in the late 40s and then was re- brought back for the Infinity Inc. stories. Uh, the, probably the most interesting thing about the, this drawing is the fact that this is an architectural sort of drawing by Todd McFarlane. It's one you of know. the rare times Todd drew something that looked like the thing it was supposed to look like. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know how he got that building to scrouch up like a spider. I, it's pretty <laughs> impressive that he did that, but it works. So. By the way, no, I just looked it up. All-Star Comics number 44 is from 1948. Okay, look at that. Look at you. You're right about something. Thank you. Pat yourself on the back. I will. Don't break your hand doing it. So, a couple other things to note. This was their headquarters in Infinity Inc. It wasn't a movie studio that was shut down. Now, Star Spangled Kid was, at least at the time of this writing, in process of reopening the studio to make it actually a live filming studio. Which is kind of a strange thing. The superheroes were based out of a film studio, and their location was publicly known. 
everyone knew that that they this was their headquarters, and in fact, they lived in there, like in some of the housing. So it's definitely a different kind of interesting idea. I wonder if it created any story concepts or story ideas throughout the series, because I don't know enough about Infinity Inc. Yeah, I don't remember that he being a huge part of it, but yeah, it's it's an interesting idea for a, a superhero headquarters. Yeah, if you're going to put him in California, I guess that's where you do. Mm-hmm. So, all right, next up, Infinity Man from the Forever People. So that guarantees that nobody cares. Ooh. But come on, just being honest, uh, it's it's an, it's a it's a it's by Jack Kirby and Greg Thiexen. I think the art in this one is nice, even though I'm not a huge fan of the costume design. But the art itself, I mean, Jack and Greg did a nice job on the foreground image. The background image looks nice. You've got all the forever people um, apparently giving a crap and trading places with Infinity Man. And then you've got a couple different shots of him in action in the background, which look nice. And, uh, I mean, he's got some nice, clean, solid lines. It's very pretty. Yeah, it's a nice piece. As you said, the costume is not doing a whole lot for me either. So, uh, but yeah, it's a nice piece. The way this worked, the Forever People were these four space hippies. Or five space hippies? Four or five? Uh, I think it's five. Five is five, yeah. And, and what they would do is they would work together to form the heart, wind, spirit, soul, whatever, to, to, to form Captain Planet uh, of Infinity Man. <laughs> I thought it was so Ultron actually, that they formed. Well, no, because then they'd still be there. They actually okay. trade places with Infinity Man. Oh, I guess Captain Planet doesn't work there either. It's more like Miracle Man, I guess. Because, you know, Miracle Man would actually trade places with the kid. So anyway, they trade places with Infinity Man. And he comes out and saves the day, and then he goes back, and then they come back. They actually switch places. It's um interesting concept uh, from a comic that nobody read. So I'm pretty brutal on Forever People. You are. And another very uninspiring logo, by the way. Yeah. Ah, good point. That's, ooh, that's particularly lame. All right. Next up, Injustice Gang of the World, who actually has a really cool logo. I love their logo. That they they had a letterhead, they had envelopes, the whole thing. <laughs> they had cocktail napkins. And Lord it's, help it's, you if you if they sent you some return address labels and you didn't donate to them and you used the address labels, boy, did you get in trouble. I bet yeah, they would hunt your ass down. It's a circular logo. It's got the Injustice Gang of the World. And then in the center, it's actually got the planet Earth cracked in half. Which I believe is the current RNC logo, but I could be wrong about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> anyway. <sighs> we're really doing that again? Anyway. <laughs> the art here is by Luke McDonald and Dick Giordano. And that's a good choice because uh, Luke McDonald was doing Justice League of America at the time. Uh, I do like how they actually have an acronym for their name, IGW. That it's... <laughs> It's really cool. I like they use it in here without really explaining it. It took me a second. I'm like, ooh, I like the way IGW. It just looks cool. IGW <laughs> for a collection of very off-brand villains, they really were quite organized. They really were. Uh, it's Libra, Kronos, Mirror Master, Poison Ivy, Scarecrow, Shadow Thief, and the Tattooed Man. <laughs> so these are some real A-listers, folks. I mean, that's not fair. Scarecrow to me is A-lister, and so is Poison Ivy, but. It's like, other than Poison Ivy and Scarecrow, what do these people have to say to one another? <laughs> well, well, they may have a lot to say to each other, but they're all a joke. <laughs> they're not all a joke. No, that's not fair. Scarecrow's not a joke. Well, that what we just said, other than those oh, two. Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, they, okay. You know what's the interesting thing? They're all sort of specific villains for the Justice League. You know, you get Tattooed Mans for Green Lantern. You get, you know, Mirror Masters for Flash. You get Shadow Thief for Hawkman. You get Kronos for Adam. Libra's... He was his there own for, thing, yeah. He's there for Graham Morrison. And you get um, Scarecrow and Poison Ivy. 
Why do you, why does Batman have two? Why did he why did he get married? He always does. It was the uh the you know, the Legion of Doom, he had like four villains. Batman always gets overrepresented in these things. What a what a ripoff. Uh now there's no mention of their first appearance here, but I looked up turns out the Injustice Gang, at least up to this point, it only had three appearances and that was it. Yeah, and the JLA like one thirteen, one fourteen, something like that. I mean they just I think it was one eleven. I think they pretty much like, you know, whomped their ass in like five seconds and it was over. <laughs> now Probably the more interesting thing that came out of this was that Libra built a satellite that was in geostationary orbit exactly on the opposite side of the Earth from the JLA satellite. That's great. And this was the swinging pad for supervillains. Yep. Like, supervillains went there, hung out, and had drinks and stuff. It's, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was cool. <laughs> and uh, eventually, this became a thing in, what was it? Was it, was it? I can't remember. Uh, Final Crisis or was it Infinite I cri- Identity Crisis? Uh, no, I think I think. Oh, Final I think it was. A, no, it was Identity Crisis. Was it? Okay. Yeah, because. Um, All right. I'd... Well, yeah. Okay. Here's the thing: the satellite was used in Identity Crisis because remember that's where Captain Boomerang kept going around trying to get everyone's attention. Uh, no. Okay, and then Libra became a thing in Final Crisis. Okay. All right. That's. I think that that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So, either way, apparently this, this entry is just ripe for the pickings for uh, people who grew up in the 80s. So, anyway, um, the entry's fine. I'm Luke McDonald and I have a checkered past. Uh, well, I really like him on dark, moody books like Suicide Squad and things like that. I, I'm not a huge fan of him on straightforward superhero comics. <laughs> it, it, it just is not... I don't feel like that's necessarily where his talent lies. I, I can't be the only person, though, that hearing that made you think you were going to tell some great story about how, you know, you know, he, he beat you up in high school or something. It sounded like you had some <laughs> sort of history together. It really is you're just not a big fan of his work. But the two of you don't oh, have did to did I say I'm not a big fan of Luke McDonald? Ooh, yes. To be specific, I'm not a big fan of some of his work okay. in our superheroes. You just made it sound like I'm you had a personal history with the guy. I was like, whoa, oh, this is going to no. be a great story. This is awesome. Yeah. Oh, no, that's with somebody else. Not with Luke. Okay. You know, Luke's... I imagine he's good people. I do so. like in this drawing the tattooed man could not be bothered to stand up. <laughs> he's like, ah, oh, to hell with it. I, I look ridiculous, so to hell with it. He really does. I mean, the tattooed man is a bit of an embarrassment. Well, now, when Vertigo came along and they did that amazing skin graft series, that was the bomb. But this is, uh, oof, yeah. Right. And, and you know, you, you, I don't know that Kronos and Libra on the same team – I think there's a quota on patterned masks. I just – I think that and, – and funny legging. I, I think there should be a limit, you know? So that's just me. That's my personal rule. Okay. You know, you, know, you got to have standards. Yep. So. All right. Next up, Injustice Society of the World, which really is what inspired the Injustice Gang right. of the World. We'll see your gang this, and make it a society. Right. <laughs> well, this one came first. Right. And it's in Earth 2. And this has a long history of dealing with the Justice Society. It goes all the way back to the All-Star Comics appearances in the 1940s. They've not only have they battled the Justice Society, they battled the Justice League. They came back in the 1970s to battle the Justice Society again. And uh, ironically, the last line is, no new version of the Injustice Society has emerged since then. Well, <laughs> there's been several since then, ladies and gentlemen. So, now... Art is it's not you, you notice the art's not credited here. But oh, yeah. He signed the piece though, so it's clearly Joe Staten. Yes. And he does a really nice job with this piece. Um not every character is stellar, but certain characters are just dead on and look great. 
love me the Sportsmaster, love Vandal Savage, love Harlequin and Huntress and Icicle and Fiddler and Brainwave and Prodegaton. They all look really nice. So I like how Solomon Grundy looks like he's twenty feet tall. Yeah, yeah. I didn't I didn't mention him when I was going over characters, but thanks. Um, <laughs> there's a reason. But anyway, great supervillain team. You know, I, he's the only one that ever appeared on a cartoon. Uh, Sportsmaster. I, I mean, in the okay, in the seven by this time is what I mean. By the time of okay, this publication. Fine. fine. Solomon Grundy. So, Solomon Grundy smash. That's <laughs> great. I love that character. Love Solomon Grundy back then. So, uh, really interesting team. I, they're really bitchy towards each other. Uh, <laughs> there used to be a lot of backstabbing and fighting, and the wizard was like, no, I'm in charge. Stop it. There was a lot of that. And uh, it really, I mean, it's an interesting collection of villains. Anything, any team that can fit the Sportsmaster on there and make it work, hats off to them. <laughs> I, I gotta say, you know, with his little grifter mask and everything, it's it's sweet. I love it. You know, if there's a, me, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, it, it makes me happy. I'm just saying, if there, if you're running a uh, supervillain softball league, you want Sportsmaster on your team. Oh hell yeah, he's your coach. <laughs> <laughs> there's no crying in supervillain baseball. <laughs> Love this entry. Love the Injustice Society. Love anything connected to the JSA. So, so not a lot of healthy, a lot of thick, healthy JSA stuff in here. Okay. Next up, one of the more interesting double listings that we've ever gotten. This is Insect Queen, but it's Earth One and Earth Two in the same entry, and yet it's different entries. Usually, when we get that, we get like um, Doctor Psycho. And they say, like, you know, we're not going to be bothered doing Earth 1 or Earth 2 version. Right. This is just that the was character. A Cavalier, too. <laughs> right. Here, they have clearly delineated between the Earth 1 and Earth 2 Insect Queen. The top half is the Earth 2 right. uh, Insect Queen, like, the quote-unquote Golden Age one. And then the bottom one is the Earth 1 Insect Queen. Like they did for um, Black Canary. Sort of. Did they actually have separate yeah. blocks? I thought so. I thought text? they did. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. But here's the really freaky deaky thing about this. Um, oh, by the way, I'm sorry. The art is by Howard Bender and Kurt Schaffenberger. And Howard Bender, I imagine, got this gig because he had a long history of doing Superboy comics. And so, you know, these characters uh, are tied pretty deeply with their, specifically the Earth Insect Queen from Earth 1. Now, when you talk about Earth 2 and Earth 1 characters, who normally premieres first? Earth 2. Right. Earth 2, the Golden Age characters usually premiere first, and then the Earth 1, you know, like maybe in the 40s or 50s. And then the Earth 2 characters came along in the 60s or 70s. I'm sorry, the Earth 2 premiered first, then Earth 1. Reverse situation here. Believe it or not. The Earth 1, which is the entry on the bottom, the Earth 1 character premiered in October 1965. The Earth 2 character did not premiere until December 1981. You are blowing my mind. Um, the Earth One character, which was introduced, for, they're both Lana Lang, by the way. So, if you know your Superman history, you know Lana Lang's an important character. Or if you watch Smallville, you know it's that little hot chick. So, uh, he, the Earth One character, who was introduced in the Superboy comics in 1965, had shape-changing abilities. She's the one that was freaking me and Rob out on the cover. She actually transforms like half of her body into whatever insect shape she needs. So she's the pretty Lana Lang on the top, and she's got a giant creepy wasp ass 
or caterpillar or dragonfly or whatever. It really freaks me out. And she looks very traditional, Silver Age, Superboy girlfriend kind of thing. And, uh, you know, she, I'm trying to remember how this happened. She, let's see, was gathering wildflowers outside of town. The telepathic SOS. So she investigated and found an alien trapped under a fallen tree. Of course she did. So, uh, and the alien gave her a biogenetic ring, which allowed her to use these powers. So, uh, apparently as an adult, Lana still has the ring, but seldom uses it. She no longer bothers concealing her identity either when she's Insect Queen. On occasion, she has let friends such as Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen use the ring. Are we really spending this much time on Insect Queen? Well, it's just interesting because then you jump to the top entry, which you would assume premiered first, but in reality appeared much later. She's actually a little bit hotter, and her she, her ass doesn't turn to a giant bee ass. She actually rides giant insects. Uh, she has the ability to make insects larger, and she can uh, ride them and, and do things like that and control them. And she is also Linda Lang and wears a blonde wig for some reason. But it's just uh, it's an interesting difference between the characters because the the Earth Two Insect Queen really does look like a more contemporary 1970s character, even though she's supposed to take place in the 40s. Or uh, Earth 2 Golden Age, if you call it. And then uh, there's a reference here you don't see very often to Mr. and Mrs. Superman. Okay. So, all right, you're really ready to move on. I just do, I just, as a kid, these, these, anytime any of, like, Superman's supporting cast got powers, I just tuned out. I was just like, all right, you're just, (laughs) you're just put, you're just breaking the goofy meter, and I just can't. So the fact that, you know, Lana Lang was, you know what, see, now you're sucking me into it. Let's move on. (laughs) <laughs> let's let's move on to a character much more important the right. invisible destroyer <laughs> in the annals of history this character will go down as what the heck anyway uh invisible destroyer by jerome moore and carl kiesel let me tell you folks really nice combo now they uh jerome moore used to draw green lantern so that's where his connection to the invisible destroyer comes in I love the design of this character. I do, I do too. I really do. He is you know, like a totally goofy, golden age-looking guy with a fin helmet. Well, silver. He, um, I don't know. He looks a little golden age-ish to me, well, too. Right, okay. I mean, he appeared in the Silver Age. Sure, but he looks sort of classic. Okay, classic. all right. That's true. Okay. Classic, as my New Jersey friend says. But And he's got a finned helmet. But the goofiest thing about it is he's invisible. His clothes aren't. Just him. So his entire invisible power, you don't see his head. That's pretty – his face, really. Is, and that's it. So it's, uh, it's really bizarre. I feel like all the heroes got together and they're like, shh, he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, why do I keep getting apprehended? I'm invisible. I don't understand this. I don't get it. I, this character made all of two appearances, I think, to this point. I think they mentioned it in a previous issue. Um, oh, yeah? yeah, in a previous letter column, because they talk about uh, somebody takes them to task for not including minor characters. And then Lynn Wein says, well, in fact, in a couple of months, we feature Invisible Destroyer, who's appeared all of, I think, once or twice by this oh, point. So this this was like their one slot for, you know, just total obscuredom. And he got a whole page! He got a whole page! <laughs> Not even half! He got a whole page! I'm pretty convinced that this Who's Who page is directly responsible for him coming around any other time after this. Did that happen? Um, you know, I don't, I can't say this for sure, but for some reason, I want to say he appeared in a Batman Brave and the Bull cartoon, like maybe as one of those crowd scenes. Well, that seems, that seems like something they would do. 
So yeah. um, I, I can't promise that. If not, he's definitely appeared in other stuff in crowd scenes. So I think who's who's directly responsible for keeping him around. <laughs> I, I love the logo, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah very nice. The, they they tried to on, on the word invisible. They tried to suggest it's invisible with weird little horizontal lines. And then there's I like the the right before invisible. It's I think that's the same the used on the Flash, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> no. Yes, it is. Is it really? I don't think. Yeah, so. it's the same the used on the Flash. I'll okay. let you research that. All right. So uh, this guy's kind of like a sci-fi gentleman ghost. It's kind of almost what he is. He, oh gosh, I, I gotta look at this because I read this is a little while ago, but he basically is connected to this physicist named Doctor Martin Phillips. And he basically says that it's sort of like his subconscious somehow takes over and, and generates a form for itself. So kind of some weird hokey stuff. Uh, Green Lantern, definitely a Silver Agey Green Lantern villain that doesn't bear a whole page or really any more of our I, I, error. I, I looked him up as we were talking. He, yeah. he has all of about nine appearances, like seven of which are reprints. So he basically, he actually only made one appearance before this. And his one appearance was showcased. That's it. So this who's who appearance marks his second appearance in all of comics. <laughs> awesome. He did come back in Green, a Green Lantern Annual, Flashing Green Lantern Brave and the Bold miniseries, and an, apparently a cameo in the Avengers JLA team up. Oh my God! But the, did, you, did you did you just say Batman Brave and the Bold? No, the Flashing oh. Green Lantern Brave and the Bold series. Uh, this oh, is comic, comic book appearances. I don't know about the cartoon. Yeah, I someone so someone do that research for me. Would you find out if he appeared in cartoons? I think he did. So okay. all right. Next up is Invisible Kid the First. <laughs> he looks who, like a uh, restaurant greeter. <laughs> Welcome you, to Legion. Would you like a booth or a tape? <laughs> would you like a bouncing boy burger or would you like uh, shrinking violet fries? Anyway, so um, nice little logo. Uh, also trying to insinuate the invisible aspect. With apparently uh, horizontal lines are the way you make things invisible in comics. <laughs> because we had on the Invisible Destroyer, we have an Invisible Kid one, and we have an Invisible Kid two. So uh, art by Kurt Swan and Al Gordon. And obviously, Kurt Swan has a, a long history with the Legion, so he was a logical choice. And apparently, he likes restaurant greeters. So, <laughs> he, the, the the biggest thing, because, you know, me, during my Legion research growing up, the biggest thing I always knew about Invisible Kid was he's dead. So, um, he kind of died. That's kind of what he's famous for, to me. So, But he had this special serum he would take, and he was also the second most skilled scientist in the Legion. Fascinating. I guess Brainiac would be number one. Probably. Yes, Brainiac 5. So, so I'm going to use this as a segue just to jump straight to Invisible Kid 2. Yeah, so, I have definitely nothing to say about this entry. <laughs> poor Lyle Norg. Bye-bye. Anyway, next up, Jacques Foucault. Invisible Kid 2. Ladies. Very, what's that? Ladies. <laughs> Drawn by Art Adams. And he is very much a uh, child this, this entry is very much a child of the 80s right here I mean it's it's Art Adams who's almost always good here it's a little minimalist yep. you know yep it definitely looks like in this drawing he was giving Rob Liefeld lessons ooh 
Well, I mean, look. Yeah, uh, look the anatomy is a little, little wonky. Yeah, look at the trunks on him, on his on his thighs yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And the length of the legs and the little hatchworky lines. He looks kind of Lightfield-esque. Yep. So, but, uh, you know, his suits looks very contemporary for the 80s. In the background, he's got this, this jacket on with enormous shoulder pads and a pop collar. And the Invisible Kid logo, I don't think that could look any more 80s if it tried. That looks like a logo if... Uh, David Cronenberg made a kids' film. <laughs> Try to unpack okay. that. <laughs> unpack that. I like that. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's it's a sort of a minimal drawing too, because the the back surprint is sort of, you know, lacking. It's yeah, there's not shocking. a lot there. Not a lot there. Now I don't know that he'd been around a long time, but he becomes a very important character in the Legion. And uh, later on, in the five years later, I mean, he's he plays a big, important role. Uh, so I want to say he was the president of Earth, maybe at one point. <laughs> okay. Why is that funny? I don't know. Why is that funny? I don't know why that's funny. It's just just it. because just because you could never aspire to be the president of Earth doesn't mean you need to take down his contribution. Jeez, I think you're better than everybody. Now, there's one weird thing in here where it talks about warping space, huh? Uh, where Let's see, where is it? Um, he has the ability to transport himself and others through space and across dimensional barriers by means of powers he cannot consciously control. You know, what is that about? So I don't know if that became a thing or that was just a one-off story, but uh, that just really threw me when I read it. So Nothing to say. Oh, it's, Le- oh, it's Legion, I forgot. It's, it just, uh, both invisible kids, just <laughs> nothing to say about them. Well, you know what's important there is that his sister is the female computer that you hated so much several oh, issues God. ago. So. Oh. Boy, the Who's Who and Legion books are going to be real slack. <laughs> it's going to be seven issues of joy for me and hell for you. All right. Next up. Okay. Well, by the way, you know, I meant to do the math on it. I think it's going to be like 2025 for me. I'm going to do the math on when we're going to get there because we've got to count the Ambush Bug series. But, oh, 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 I want some help from our listeners. For those of you who have really, for some reason, hung around this long into the show, um, I need some help. I'm, I want to assemble because, A, I'm a little lazy, and, B, I want someone to do the work for me, and, C, I'm getting ready for the future. Uh, when we cover Who's Who, you know, we're going to cover this series. We're going to cover the 87 update. We're going to cover the 88 update. And we're going to get to the loose leaf stuff as well. However, in between, those of you in the know, there was, I want to say it was 1989, I think it was. There were a bunch of who's who entries printed in DC Comic Annuals. Did you know this, Rob? I don't think I did. Yeah. There was a series. It was either 88 or 89, I want to say. There was a series of annuals. It wouldn't have been 88 because I think we got an update, didn't we? Anyway, there was annuals that year all had – well, not all, but this particular annuals had who's who entries in there. They've never been collected together. So what I'd like to ask of our readers, if anyone has a complete list of all of those who's who entries and what comics they appeared in, that would be helpful. What would be even more helpful would be a torrent, but I didn't ask for that. No, you didn't. You didn't ask for that. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just saying. So, because um, I, I would like to spend an issue covering those. So, or an episode, I should say. Yeah, I want to see those now. I had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah. So, all right. Next up, I, dot, 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 vampire. This is very awkward in that his listing is not his name. It's the name of his series. 
Ooh. His name is not I Vampire. <laughs> that is a very good point. His name is I, Andrew Bennett. I did not think about that. He doesn't go around calling uh, himself I Vampire. <laughs> so it, here's the thing. Well, first of all, it's a really nice logo. I like that. But I assume it's probably the logo from the series. It is. But I, as this, this character. What? I, Shag. I, Shag, uh, was befuddled by this entry. Uh, the character has been around for 400 years, okay? And he's listed in a comic called House of Mystery, number 290 was the first appearance. I don't know anything about that book. I don't remember it ever coming out. As far as I'm concerned, it was before my time of collecting comics. No, it's like, so, the, well, it is, but that's like, that's like mid-80s. Exactly. That's the point I'm getting at. Okay. The character's 400 years old. It seemed to me that this character was from a long time ago. I, I literally assumed this comic was like from the 50s. You know, I had no idea until we did the who's, who's, who's Who entry. I did my research. It appeared in – his first appearance was in 1981. So really at this point, he was only a five-year-old character. Right. Which blew my mind. And here's a guy that was apparently so interesting, they revamped him for the new 52. That's so. right. That's right. Yeah. So art by Tom Sutton and Dick Giordano, who also drew a lot of the Eye Vampire strips. So um, as far as the art goes, like the foreground image – it's sort of a weird – what's that? A little tiny. It is, but it's a really odd stance too. It's sort of like you know, a parent who's waiting for their kid to take the trash out. Like, really? You didn't do what you're supposed to do? <laughs> I'm waiting. I can see his toe tapping. I'm waiting. You know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm projecting what happened earlier tonight at my own maybe. house. Not sure. Anyway, love the serpent though. Love. The serpent with the the part where he's drunk the blood and he's horrified that he's done it. You know, the, the romance with this woman who eventually turns on him, them battling different folks, and then him dying. You know, it's just, wow, really impressive. Very edgy. So as I read through the entry, I, be, I became very sad for his friends, Mishkin and Deborah, who got killed. And um, also you get the very classic story of a vampire who falls in love Turns turns his his love and she just can't handle it and goes evil. Uh, you know whether it be Angel, the TV series, or other stuff. You see that kind of replayed through vampire story where, where good quote unquote good vampire stuff happens. It's sort of a classic good vampire trope. And I don't know if I don't know when that trope started. For all I know, this could be the first time that trope ever really kicked off. But it's just I, I always like kind of seeing that trope. Anyway, um, really blew my mind that this character was so recent. So and and it goes all the way from introducing the character to his death, you know. Done and done. Yeah, really interesting. Next up, we get IQ by Murphy <laughs> Anderson. <laughs> There's a lot of losers in this issue. <laughs> I still like this. I still like it. Why did I, did, I, get... I didn't say that I didn't. I'm just saying. Did I get a lot stuck. of losers in this one. Trying to say something about that? Anyway, uh, this is I volunteered to take the lead on this one. You said no. (laughs) This is a Hawkman villain, so you know nobody cares. And um, he... It's interesting. They they really... And I I don't know whether this is retconned or not. They really try to tie it in with other stuff. Because his origin involves Adam Strange. It involves chemo. So there's some different stuff going on. Anyway, he... um, He's got these what they call acro shoes, which is apparently <laughs> they're like little rockets that go on his feet. <laughs> and there's like this weird, there's this weird like thing that makes him really smart, but only in certain places and stuff. Like, 
I I did read this. I do promise. But like, I really don't remember much of it because it was kind of like, oh, really? Seriously? Oh. Um, oh, sunlight triggered radiation. That's what it was. <laughs> Which made him so smart. So it only works sometimes. It's, um, I'm kind of done. I like at the end of the list thing, it says, as of this writing, IQ is serving a lengthy sentence in a maximum security federal prison. Yes, because this guy is such a danger. You don't want him getting out. Take one look at him, folks. He is terrifying. Yeah. I, I have a note written down here, which I don't even understand. I wrote, team up with a trickster? Seems like something you would do. Yeah, that must be what I was thinking. Because he just, with his flying shoes, maybe that's and what it was. his little dark gun of death that he's got there. And his all his little clever devices. That yeah. must have been what I was wow. thinking of. Okay. Next up, Oof. beautiful Here we go, piece. finally. Something good. Beautiful piece by Joe Kubert. Well, wait, finally. We have, we've had some nice pieces yeah, we have. so far. I know, I know. Infinity Inc.? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm just, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, Invisible Destroyer, regardless of how redunculous the character is. All right, is, come on, we're on to Iron Major. Come on, come on, come on. Come All right, on. Iron Major by none other than Joe Kubert himself, folks. This is a nice piece. Yep. Uh, it's two-thirds of the page, all vertical. A really nice shot of him standing there, sort of Heil Hitler-ish with his big iron hand. Uh, this is Joe at his best, probably, you know, in times when he was doing the characters he loved the most, Sergeant Rock characters. So it's uh, really cool. I, interesting. I, I didn't know much about the character. But reading about how he lost his hand, how he went to go save, you know, a fellow soldier and who'd fallen through the ice and got frostbite on his hand and his right. head, hand had to be we, chopped off. And like, we see that in the, we see that in, in the uh, color hold back there. Yeah. He's pulling out his frozen hand. And uh, then he got put in charge of Stalag 9, where he eventually uh, met Sergeant Rock. Just a really nice origin piece. You really get a sense for the character. It's well done. Yeah, it's a very, it's a great piece. Kubert really knew how to fill the space quite well. And uh, I, I don't know that much about the character myself either, but uh, he looks mean. You know, he looks really sinister. So it's it's a great, it's one of those ones that's like, oh, I want to go find this guy now. And you look up the issues and see where he appeared because he looks really, really cool. Yeah, so a really good usage of black, you know, yeah. or in this is red, but yeah, solid color, I should say. Yeah. Nicely done with the Very shadows nice. and the eyes and everything. It's really good. Yeah. All right. Next up, the breakout character of this book, as far as I'm concerned, is like just the <laughs> unexpected wow factor. Iron Wolf by Howard Chaikin. Very nice. Really nice art piece. Really interesting history. Oh, it only had three appearances by right. this point. Right. Dude, why does he marry? And that was 1973, dude. Why does he merit a full page? You know why? Because Howard Chicken kicks all the ass. That's why he merits a full page. This is great. Uh, this guy, he's he is a futuristic space pirate who dresses in the garb of a Highlander. <laughs> it's kind of what you're dealing with. He looks awesome. He's got this cool orange beret on. He's got this orange tartan on. He's got these huge hip high or uh, thigh high boots a sword a gun a little half cape he just looks badass you know Howard Chicken did a great job on the serpent with just the solid space with just sort of an echo of his face in their spaceship really neat stuff now uh, Chaikin and Denio 1973 when the character appeared the, the creators involved were Denny O'Neill Howard Chaikin and guess who was doing letters the letters I think it was uh, why do I think it's Walt Simonson it was Walt Simonson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Wow. So, I mean, how what a, what a power team that is. I mean, I know Simonson can only do so much with letters, but dang. I think that was probably because at the time, Walt Simonson and Herman Chicken were sharing an apartment. Aw, that's so cool. There's a, there's a story in back issue about them living together and picking up checks together. God, I bet that was like a rocking apartment to hang out with. <laughs> well, I mean, they're probably nerds, but still. Chicken's fine out of murder. I think, I I think, figured, yeah, I think they did okay. Uh, Chicken was a player. Yeah, yes, he was. This is a great listing, and I just a little piece of trivia. Weird Worlds, one of probably the only, maybe? I was about to say few, but probably only, comic book series ever canceled because of a paper shortage. Really? Yes. In the, in the letters page to number 10 of Weird Worlds, there's a letter from Denny O'Neill mentioning that because there was a paper shortage, which there was in 1973, they had to like limit certain titles. Now, I, that could have been just BS, that they were just, they didn't want to say that the book had low sales. Because, you know, they kept printing Superman. Uh, but, but basically, <laughs> you know, basically Dan O'Neill says, yeah, DC's having to cut some titles because of the paper shortage and Weird Worlds is one of those books, so it's going to go. Hmm. It's a shame. It was a great series. He drew, you know, we didn't quite get into this, but in the original series, Chicken drew the original series, as you mentioned, lettered by Walt Simonson, and covers by Michael Kaluta. So, I mean, just, oh, crap. Yeah, Seriously? Great book. Great. great only, ran, only ran 10 issues. Great, pulpy stuff. Really fun series. I, it's, I don't think they've ever been collected. They may be. They, um, they may I have think, been. They I think may the Iron Wolf stuff was. The Iron Wolf, you know what, you're right. The Iron Wolf stuff was, I don't know if all the Weird World stuff was. Some of it has been because um, it featured John Carter, Warlord of Mars, back when DC had the rights to that, and that's been reprinted. But I don't know if the entire Weird World series has. It's well worth finding. You can find them back issues very cheap. They're, that was a great, fun little book. And just to give you an idea what this character is, he, he's a space-hopping revolutionary. Again, with ties to, like, Scottish uh, culture. And one of the interesting things... He owned a in the beginning of the story. He owned a forest of anti gravity trees that are used to create spaceships. It's like, dang, that's really creative. That's pretty cool. So, and guess where he showed up again shortly after this? Uh, who's who entry? Uh, where? DC Challenge number twelve. Oh, did he? Wow, I gotta go look that up. Yeah. I, it probably was a one paneler because I mean this is just done in my research. I, it's not like I remember it. And uh, the issue number twelve of DC Challenge was done by a bunch of different creative yes, teams. It was, like, yes. and I think he showed up in the Jerry Conway written one. If I if I remember my research right. Okay. All right. Next up is Earth Two Boob Window number two, uh, Jade. So by Jerry Above Reproach Ordway, and uh, really, I am sticking with that. I mean, really nice piece. I yeah, mean, she's beautiful. She's super cute. Uh, this is actually where I noticed the boop window, not the other one. But she's in the background. Uh, the serpent's got her and her brother Todd, who's Obsidian. It's got her fighting her dad, Green Lantern. It's got her with the post-crisis Kents. Uh, it's a really nice drawing. And uh, you, didn't, you didn't even say anything about that. Wow. Okay. What? Just let that... Say anything about what? <laughs> it's her with the post-crisis Kents. I don't get it. Ma and Pa Kent. Right. Post-crisis. I, I, that old couple yeah. in the drawing. Yeah. I don't, I, don't under, like, I don't understand what you're saying. It looks like the way Jerry Ordway drew the, the, the Kent family oh. in post-crisis. Oh, okay. Anyway. I just yeah, sort of accepted for... that. I was like, all right, uh, maybe that's who they are. I don't know. No, it's not at all. It's the family that adopted her and raised her. Oh, that's so. right. Okay. 
Anyway, she is, in fact, the daughter of Alan Scott. She was not raised by him. He didn't even know he had a daughter until she was already in her either late teens or early 20s. She has a star-shaped birthmark on her hand. She calls the Power Plus. And uh, I can't – never mind. I had a really bad joke there. Uh, very naughty. Anyway, um, like her dad, she has a vulnerability to wood. And another really bad joke that's going to go by. All right, all right, all right. She does use her power pulse, though, to change – because she, she's got green skin. I mean, she's totally like She-Hulk in it, but petite. Uh, but she does use the power pulse to disguise her looks. And, uh, you know, eventually down the line she went on to date Kyle Rayner. So she's big thumbs up in my book. It's, it's Yeah, I liked her character. She was bubbly and fun, and this drawing is great. I love the line work. The, um, yeah. the zip-a-tone yeah. or duo-tone, whatever Jerry used, really, really beautiful. And he, he drew very beautiful women, but they weren't, like, overly sexualized. I mean, she's very petite and small. She's not, like, this big va 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 girl. But just that little uh, inset of her face is a really wonderful little portrait of a very pretty girl. So it's great. Yep. It's, it's classic. It's great. And, and cute was the dead on word. I mean, her, her in the foreground shot, she her, the huge smile and the eyes just make her adorable. Yep. So good stuff. All right. Next up is uh, we've got a, a split page with two different entries. Uh, on the top, we get Jason Bard by Don Heck. And on the bottom, we get Javelin by Dave Gibbons. So if you don't know who Jason Bard is, he is a detective, uh, or I should say a private investigator probably, in Gotham City. And he had a history in, I think it's the 70s? In Detective Comics, he did a bunch of backup strips with Batgirl and eventually became romantically involved with Barbara Gordon. So, I mean, he's, he's got, I mean, that's some serious cred, you know, dating Barbara Gordon. I mean, because I think every guy at some point has been like, mm, Barbara Gordon. So, good for him. Now, Don Heck did this piece because he drew a lot of the strips. So... Now, are you a Jason Bard kind of guy or not? Or nothing, uh, I but. don't have any great feeling about one or the other, but just the fact that he was like a non-superheroed character that got his own listing, I, I sort of like it, just that for the sheer uniqueness of it. Yeah, and he didn't, and he's not Insect Queen. Right, yeah, he's not, yeah. That, that was good, <laughs> that's a great thing to read in history, that at no point, Jason Bard later became Kane Man, and he became a half-insect, <laughs> you know, no, he's just a regular dude, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, he got injured in a, in a war yeah, and came back gets, war. Right. with a cane. Is he beats the shaz out of people with his cane, which is great. Which is great. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Bottom half of the page is Javelin, the character who, without a doubt, proves that DC was running out of gimmicky weapons. Would have uh, made a great superpowers figure. He would have made a good superpowers figure. Actually, you're right. With javelin throwing action. Right, exactly. Now he only, up to this point, only appeared in two issues of Green Lantern. Uh, when I did the research on this, uh, I came across something. It turns out it was out of chronological order. But guess what one of it, not his first appearance, but guess what one of his earliest appearances are? I have no idea. DC Sampler number three. <laughs> I was going to, okay, I was about to say anyone who wants to hear that should go back to our episode 50 and listen to that, but they shouldn't do that. <laughs> it's... It's four hours long. Yeah, four and a half hours long. So it's not worth digging up for just a javelin reference. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's worth every minute of it. That episode is balls of the wall crazy fun. So anyway, um, for me, uh, did I say Dave Gibbons drew this? I don't remember. Yeah, Dave Gibbons drew this. He was drawing Green Lantern at the time, so it made sense. But um, for me, this character is a a non-entity until he joined the Suicide Squad. That's just my take on it. Okay. 
So we're blowing through some of these characters kind of fast. Some well, of the characters were not, not I suppose. Because, you know, there's a lot of zeros here. <laughs> Aww. Speaking of zeros, um, <laughs> Frank will be happy to hear the one we're covering next, folks. We are covering Gem, Son of Saturn. Ooh. Art art by Gene Cologne and Bob McCloud. Very nice. So, what's the best way to describe Gem? Here, I'll give it a shot. Um, Gem is Gem, Gem is excitement. Uh, Gem is adventure, glamour and glitter, fashion and fame. Gem is truly outrageous, truly, truly outrageous. So um, the most notable thing to say about Gem, he is universally considered boring. Uh, I, I think there was a vote in the mid-'80s about who's the most boring comic 12-issue series ever published, and I think this one came up pretty high on the list. Uh, this whole thing was a cluster mess from the start. It was supposed to be a Martian Manhunter connected story. It was going to be about Martian Manhunter's like nephew or something like that. And they said, oh, sorry, we're using Martian Manhunter for someone else. And like, oh, crap, we've already like written this thing. So they quickly changed it to being Saturn people instead of Martian people who are red instead of green, have a weakness to fire. I mean, like, really? Okay. Because Martian Manhunter is so popular, you need a second one. Anyway, um, and it really what ultimately ended up happening is Martian Manhunter didn't get off the ground like he was supposed to. So really, this, this character is just a big Martian Manhunter cockblock. Is kind of how I see this. Okay. <laughs> and Gene Cologne has a history of doing some amazing, amazing artwork. This was not it. I think this is a nice piece. Not a great, I, you know. Dude, that background is so weak. Yeah, yeah. I like the I, I I like the foreground image. I, I do I like Gem's visuals, but yeah, the series itself was very tedious. It's almost unreadable. <laughs> um, you know, I, I gotta wonder here because Bob McCloud is, for my money, one of the best inkers yes. around. Yes. Uh, Marvel style inkers, you know, if you put it that way. Him and Terry Austin, you know, I'd put them on top of anybody back then in the 80s, and it's just gold. So I got to think that Bob McCloud was really, really trying to not get in the way of Gene Colon's pencils here. He had to. Because he could have done a lot of different stuff with his, with his art. So, anyway. Don't mean to dwell on it. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, move Next. on. Well, it's it's worth mentioning that Graham Morrison brought the character back and tried to do something interesting with him in Justice League, and that didn't really work either. So. All right, Jennifer Morgan from by Dan Jurgens and Mike DiCarlo from the Warlord comic. I dig this entry. I think it's a cool art piece. I think there's some nice stylish effects. You've got uh, a hot chick in the foreground with long white hair. You've got a nice close-up of her face. And then in the background, you've got sort of some scenes from Scartaris with her dad. And then there's some, you know, sort of interesting horizontal line effect going on there. I think it's a nice little piece. I really like it. I like how she's making, using her magic powers to make um, cotton candy. That's great. That's... Yeah, what's going on with that fire? That's really cool looking. I mean, her, her little power symbol and then what's going on with the flames are really interesting. So, um... I feel bad for her, though. If you read her entry, she really got screwed over because, like, her mom dies. Her dad supposedly died. Oh, wait, no, he's not dead. He's in Skartaris all this time and just ignoring you because he doesn't love you. Oh, come to Skartaris and, oh, get used by somebody for evil. Oh, so sorry about that. Oh, get used again by somebody. uh, There are a lot of absent parents in superhero comics. (laughs) 
she really and she really got screwed over by the people of Scartaris. But by the end of it, she was this mage supreme, which I guess all worked out well. And here's another character, a person who's not old that has white hair for you. Oh yeah, and, right. and there's sort of this weird, vague reference in the powers of weapons that I don't get because I didn't read Warlord. But like, you know, she has this whole thing, and the last sentence says her power is great enough to enable her to hold off the demonic, in all cap, e or in at least capital letters, evil one, in battle, at least temporarily. Who the hell is that? <laughs> there's no mention of the evil one in here anywhere. I, I don't, I don't get that. So. Yeah, anyway. I have no idea what this. I know, I know nothing about this character other than this listing. Visually, nice, yes. nice thing. I, I know of her because I just watched a Justice League Unlimited episode the other night, and she was in it. But I like um, the uh, skull over the crotch. It's very intimidating. Oh my gosh! There's another one in this issue. Then I'll just use my line here: scariest chastity belt ever. <laughs> Uh, Jinx has the same issue in just a minute. Wow, I didn't even notice that. Okay. So, uh, again, uh, she's, she's hot. You know, I dig that. So, all right. Next up. Speaking of hot. Uh, Jericho from the New Teen Titans by George Perez. Um, there's no polite way to put this. Uh, I like it when you get, like, totally irrational with your hatred of somebody. I, that just I this hate is, this, is this the character. Doreen Day of the New Teen Titans. No, no, I have my reasons. Um, he, he is – I like the concept of his powers. Um, first of all, I've told you before I don't like mental powers that much. You know, I'm not a big mental power fan. I prefer physical powers in a comic book. His is a possession power. He's sort of karma, I mean, from the New Mutants. Um, and I'm pretty sure karma came first. But, uh, you know, he takes possession of other people. Which is a cool utility power. You know, not everyone needs to have energy blasts and fly and have big boobs. You know, you, you can have, you can do something other than Starfire. So, from a utility power perspective, I like it, but the character just never worked. And it's not because, he, by the way, the big shtick, sh- if you will, with Jericho, the thing that made him famous was he's deaf. And so he uses sign language, which is pretty cool. You know, that's a neat idea. It, it, the 80s was very much a PC, moving towards a PC era. And so this was kind of a neat thing to introduce, especially for kids to, to help with understanding and tolerance. And I think it probably did that. The character wasn't interesting, though. That's the problem. It's not the, the, it's not the sign language. It's not the power. It's the character and that friggin' ridiculous-looking costume. Just look at that thing, man. What the hell is that purple vest with the gold accents and that – you know who he looks like? He looks like – look at his head. He looks like Baby New Year from looks like, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He looks like Cliff Carmichael is what he looks like. No. He looks like Baby Reindeer is who he looks like. All right, but not, I mean not Baby Baby New Year. It's just – it's – oh, this character drives me crazy. Um, the drawing is very detailed as George Perez is famous for doing. There's some very nice accents and there's some very nice little pieces if you study them individually. As a whole, it's really boring. Um – Okay. Sorry, my only, did I mention did I mention how stupid his costume was? <laughs> my only observation on this character is having had to draw many many people over the years, drawing hands and feet is really tough. So coming up with a character who a- speaks ask uh, ask Rob Liefeld. Yeah, well he okay. Um, he draws them he, just not well. Yeah, uh, but I mean you know hands and feet are especially really hard. And having a character that speaks entirely through sign language has got to have been a gigantic pain in the ass. 
But because this character was co-created by George Perez, George Perez was obviously taking that upon himself. It wasn't like Wolfman was like, I'm going to screw Perez over with this guy. Uh, you know, George did it to himself. So, you know, hey, man, good on you. But good Lord, I can't imagine what a pain that had to have been when you, you, know, you get Maybe to the he... script and there's like three pages of Jericho just talking. You're like, I got to draw all that. Oy. <laughs> And actually, it's worth mentioning here, uh, above his logo, there's actually this verti- uh, horizontal box that has the letters of his name in sign language. Which is great. I think that's nice. Yeah. Yep. It's a nice touch. So Now, and, um, talking about the character, which I haven't done, I should have. He is the son of Slade Wilson, Deathstroke the Terminator, and Adelaide. And that's an important deal. I mean, that's why he's famous is because of who his daddy is. And when, his, when he was a baby, or at least young, he was kidnapped. Because somebody wanted some information out of Slade. Well, Slade re- refused to reveal the information, saved his son, but not before they started to slit his throat. I'm sorry, he's not deaf. I am sorry, he's not, oh my God, I've been saying it wrong. He's not deaf, he's mute. Oh, that's right, jeez. God, I, jeez, no. sorry about that. He's mute, he can't speak. He can hear just fine. He can't speak. Um, because his throat was slit, and he survived it, but his vocal cords were cut. And, of course, this pissed off Adelaide, and, uh, and so eventually Joe, uh, who's Jericho, went and joined the new Teen Titans. And then a bunch of crazy shit happened where he turned evil. All right, let's just he... move on. Where, where are we? Come on. <laughs> I just, I We've got much more important characters to cover, like, like who's next? The Jester! <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually have a lot of passion for this character. Uh, this is another half-page entry. And the art is by Ken Stesey. And as far as I know, this is the only time Ken drew this character. Now, here it is a guy dressed up literally in a jester costume. He's got, you know, the bells, and he's got the goofy, he's got stripes and polka dots and, and primary colors and secondary colors. And Striking laughter just... in the hearts of evildoers. No, he's not. Uh, in fact, he laughs as he comes into combat with him, which sort of eventually sort of spooked them. He is secretly Chuck Lane, a rookie police officer. You know, back in the 1940s, and would take on the hoods as the jester, and uh, they, they, you know, he, he kept the streets clean, man. And Ken Stacy did a really nice job with his yes, drawing. Yes, yes, Ken Stacy's a great artist. So it was interesting pairing him up with this very obscure character. Well, he really knocked it out of the park. The, the the picture of Chuck Lane in his police uniform in the background is so cool. Now, here's where I have a personal love for this character. Uh, I think I've told you we did a superhero role-playing game for a number of years, and it took place in the DC Universe, but we made up our own characters. So we'd make up our own characters, but it took place in the DC Universe. Well, one of the guys in our group created a character called the Jester, and he had all this stuff played out. He didn't even realize there was this obscure character. And so after a while, what I did was, I, as I was the GM, I introduced this character as part of the game. Said, you know, basically Chuck Lane came around saying, dude, you took my name. And, uh, and, and, you know, since this was modern day and that guy was in the 1940s, he actually became a reoccurring character in our storyline as an old retired superhero. And uh, it just it was all sort of uh, serendipitous. It worked out really well. So almost like uh, Jay Garrick was a supporting character in the Wally West Flash for a long time. Okay. Wow. Totally dismissed my uh, RPG story. That's not, how is that being dismissed? I have nothing to say to it. That sounds good. Could have said... Cool, man. Okay, cool, anyway. man. <laughs> Siskoi was on the edge of his seat. He understands. He's a role player. All right. On the second half of this page is one of the more interesting drawings to me. Uh, it is Jinx from the Fearsome Five, 
and drawn by, here, the surprising thing, drawn by Chuck Patton and Bob Smith. Because, if I remember right, all the other Fearsome Fives have been drawn by George Perez so far, haven't mm-hmm. they? Yeah, I be- yeah, I think so. Well, was Dr. Light? I don't remember if Dr. Light was. No, Dr. Light was not, but Gizmo was. And... All, all the characters George created were. Right. So, you know, the Gizmo, like you mentioned, and uh, oh, I can't even remember the other characters because who really cares? But uh, George drew all of those. And so it, this one had me scratching my head until I did a little bit of research. Turns out that Chuck Patton... And Bob Smith drew uh, this character in the Tales of the Teen Titans book. So um, so they have a connection to it. So Now, um, I don't know a lot about the character. And you, and you read the entry, you don't learn a lot about the character. Except uh, looking at the visual, you see she's got a Cobra Cod piece, which makes pretty much the scariest damn chastity belt in the world. So it, it is a cool look, though. And... Um, you know, it's uh, but she in all you really walk away knowing is she's the magic chick from Fierce of Five. Yep. So and she's got a headgear that looks very uncomfortable to wear. It does look a little heavy. Now Chuck Patton and Bob Smith did a really nice job with this. And this is probably isn't the way Perez would have gone, but I think they did a really nice job. They've got you know her in the foreground casting some spells in full color. You've got a nice shot close up of her head in the back, and then you've got her um, murdering people with her powers. Okay, very nice. So, next up, Johnny Cloud. And uh, he is drawn by Joe Brzezowski and Sal Amadoya, maybe? Amendola. There it is. Uh, Joe uh, drew uh, these characters in The Losers. So, oh, no, I'm sorry. He, uh, he drew this character and the Losers entry in A Future Who's Who. So that was really his only connection to this. So, but Joe Brzezowski was actually... Uh, I can't remember if it was at this point or just in a few months, was the regular Firestorm artist. Right. He took over after um, Raphael Cannon. So, in fact, uh, the Firestorm image we use on the Fire and Water podcast was done by Joe Brzezowski. So, there you go. Really? Yeah. yeah. Huh. Believe it or not. I know. I, I, I know it that. looks like a Cannon drawing or, or maybe even you know somebody else, but it's, that's actually a bro. Now, I think it was inked by Giordano probably. It's a, it was from a cover. So, I mean, right, obviously right. a lot more love and care went into it. But, hey, that has nothing to do with Johnny Cloud. Johnny Cloud is known for being a member of the Losers. Uh, it, it's, it's a, this one, in particular, has a really well-written entry. It's about a Native American who tries to prove his best in the Army. He's ridiculed for being a Native American, but eventually he does such a good job as an air pilot that he's promoted, and he's doing great until apparently they needed him for the Losers comics and everything went wrong, and then he ended up joining them sort of out of embarrassment for whatever had gone wrong. It's just interesting. His reading is like, success, 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 success. All these successes, and then, oh, it all went horribly wrong so you could join the losers. So, Anyway, uh, you, but one of the things I like about it, you really get a sense for the character when you read it. Those are the who's who entries that speak to me the most. This one's really slick, really nice. And uh, also reminded me that I need to get out there and read some losers comics because they sound interesting. The art, hmm, a little simple. Probably too simple. Um, the the image in the foreground is probably fine. It's a little, you know, not too detailed. But but the background image of him in his little cap, uh, it's um, some I don't know something's not quite right about it. It just doesn't look I, right. I like the foreground image a lot more than the background images. Yeah, yeah. Now the background does have this image of the clouds. He he keeps seeing this this character in the cloud shapes, which is where he gets his his, his Indian birth name. But um. 
So that's kind of represented in the back, which is kind of nice. But it's, uh, yeah, I agree. Foreground's better. Yep. So next up, really nice entry. Love this one. Johnny Quick by Cary Gamble and Bruce Patterson. So let me ask you, why did Cary Gamble draw it? I have no idea. What would your guess be? Uh, I, I, I honestly don't know. He, he wasn't drawing All-Star Squadron. That was my guess. I was like, well, he must have been drawing All-Star Squadron at the time. Maybe, you know, maybe Ordway took a break or, you know, Rick Butler did or whoever. Yeah, this it, it even looks like, oh, this stepped right out of All-Star Squadron or something. No, this is the only time Kerry Gamble ever drew it. Hmm. Okay. I, I, he's a perfect choice. It looks great. You know, he's got that. Because Johnny Quick always had, he was a speedster, but he, he never looked like he was trying to run. You know, it was, it was always looked like he was just moving quickly. And here's there's the sense that, hey, look at me, I'm moving super fast, but I'm not really trying. It's just like, zooming into the frame. Uh, really, really love the art. The background art, the, the serpent art's great. The close-up on his face and his sidekick and the flying and making out with Liberty Bell. By the way, she's hot. I should mention that. Uh, is really, really nice. I like that. I have to think, and, uh, yeah? I think the, the anatomy of, the, of Johnny Quick is a little wonky there. Uh, I guess Where? The, the, the main image. The, the, okay. His head is too tiny. His leg is too big. His foot is, like, huge. But, you know, I guess if it's okay with Liberty Bell, <laughs> it should be okay with us. Hey, Liberty Bell can have her way with me. I, I have to say, too, I have a little bit of a personal animus towards Johnny Quick, simply because he ran in more fun comics the exact same time Aquaman did, and he almost always got the cover. <laughs> Which, you know, really, Johnny Quick? Really? <laughs> now, since, all right, since you've mentioned that, I assume uh, the logo, which is really, really cool, is the old logo from yes, the comic? Yes, yes. The only time the hero gets his powers, get equal billing with his name. Yep. He says, Johnny Quick, and then with a little, uh, looks like a stick, sticky note, says, and his magic formula. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you don't know the deal with Johnny Quick, um, he's probably best known for modern audiences as being a regular in All-Star Squadron, sort of being a headliner in there. But he can run super fast, sort of the Flash, and he can actually fly if he gets up enough speed. But in order to activate his powers, he actually has to verbalize 3X29YZ4A and somehow get parentheses in there. I'm not sure how you verbalize those. <laughs> Maybe he says parentheses or pren. I've heard people say close pren. Anyway, uh, by actually verbalizing that out loud, it gives him super speed, which makes absolutely no sense. Even as a kid, I called shenanigans on that one. Yep. And in fact... To stop being super fast, he has to say Z25Y2AB6. And, and there's more parentheses in here. And some of these are um, not superscript, but subscript. I mean, it's – I don't know how you verbalize that when you're in a hurry. So uh, pretty ridiculous. But uh, anyway, his secret ID, secret identity of Johnny Chambers, I love this. He's a newsreel photographer for See All, Tell All News. <laughs> How awesome does that sound? I mean, it's just like, oh, that's so cool. I love that. And I, I, I do wonder, like, how much of that is his original story from the original series that he had and how much it was, like, an All-Star Squadron retcon. Like, I don't know if he was actually, you know, a, a, a news photographer or not, but uh, it just works so cool. Love this one. 
All right. right. (laughs) My grudge continues. Apparently so. Next one, Johnny Peril, not Johnny whatever you called him in the beginning. Johnny Double. Oh, Johnny Double. Johnny Double, yeah. yeah. So Johnny Peril by Trevor Von Eden and Dick Giordano. Now, I did a little research on this one because I was kind of scratching my head thinking, that Trevor Von Eden's kind of an odd choice for this one. He did a really nice job with it. It was kind of an odd choice. Turns out that he drew the character in 1981 in a, in a short story in a book called The Unexpected. So it made more sense than I thought. However, Trevor Von Eden, to me at least, with my experience, is known for uh, his awesome, awesome, awesome Count Vertigo entry in Who's Who. And if you look at this character, this guy looks a little bit like Count Vertigo. Yes, it's a great drawing. Dick Giordano was a perfect anchor for Trevor Von Eden because I think Trevor Von Eden could get a little loose, like a little too loose, and I think Giordano is the perfect anchor to kind of rein him in a little bit. But it's well, that's good, interesting. But it's still got all the sort of dynamic poses and nice line work and and sort of unusual style, uh, unusual uh, staging that uh, Von, Von Eden was known for. Like I love the little fight scene down at the bottom of, of uh, Johnny Pearl pasting those two guys. That's really mm-hmm. well done. It's really well executed. Yeah, I lo- the the extended arm is really yep. what sells that yep, home, yep, and it yep. looks great. So, and there's like a yeti behind him getting ready to attack. Yeah, and there's I just some it makes neat you stuff. Read this there. series, actually, it looks fun. It does look like a very good adventure series. One little piece that really just sells it for me is under his group affiliation. There we go. I was going to mention that too. <laughs> yeah, he's a left. Well, go ahead. Well, okay, it says lapsed member on borrowed time club, and then in parentheses oh seven years in club fees. So it's awesome. clearly whoever wrote this was having a little bit of fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's weird because it's not anywhere in the entry at no. all. So, you know, and I don't know if it ever existed in the comics, but it, it tells you right there, you know, okay, he's living on borrowed time, at least seven years worth of borrowed time. What a, what a cool way to convey that message. It's just really funny. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is a high adventure Indiana Jones kind of, at least that's the way it's described. Yeah, I mean, the name, you know, it's, it's right there in the name. Yep, and it really this this is a this was a product just waiting for development in the late seventies and early eighties as a TV series because this is this is oh, the A team. Right. This is the A team or Stingray just waiting to happen. Well, I think it's more like Night Stalker, Kolchak the Night Stalker, but okay. But you know, stuff. goes from town to town. Yep, helps people. Doesn't necessarily ask for money. He might ask for favors or something. You do it's for the like, kids, oh, Hannibal. <laughs> This is totally an 80s program in development. So, you know, somewhere in the back of a comic scene magazine, it probably said Johnny Peril in development. I mean, if Human Target can get two TV series, can't Johnny Peril get one? I mean, for God's sake. (laughs) All right. Uh, Johnny Thunder, the first of three Johnny Thunder entries in this comic. Um, This one is done by Steve Lealoha. Beautiful. And... Yes, I'm glad you said that. Regardless of whether you think he's a dick or not. Yes, he's a giant, he's a giant douche nozzle, Johnny Thunder. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but I've never heard, I love this. I've never, heard, I've never heard someone describe a JSA member as a douche nozzle. <laughs> you got to hang out with them a lot more. I'm sure they talk that way about the Spectre. Uh, but I will say, as much as, <laughs> as much as he looks like a complete wad here, here, I would have bought a Johnny Thunder book if it had been drawn by Steve Leola. I think he did so, this is such a great drawing. It's got so much life to it. It's so um, old school, modern, but yet kind of retro looking, lighthearted. I really would have bought a Johnny Thunder book, no problem, um, if, if Leola had done it. He was a perfect guy to do this listing. 
Oh yeah, I mean it, it's it's like you said, it's got a modern touch, but it also gives the hint of the cartooniness, yep. really, because yep. you know in the certain you know the foreground you've got Johnny Thunders you know pointing and the Thunderbolts going into action, which is pretty cool, very modern. In the background you get you know a nice close up of his face, but you get him swooning over Black Canary, With little cartoon as, hearts floating over his head, yep. as anybody truthfully would. Yes. And it's got him with his adopted daughter who looks straight out of Sugar and Spike. And she's got a cartoon dog she's struggling with. And it just, it's a, it's a fun, fun piece. And it's only, well, it's about a half page uh, wide. And it looks nice, though. It's really good. Yeah, it's um, great. Before you explain the douchiness, um, interesting origin. Like, it's really complicated, his origin. Yeah. And... Like, overly so. Like, I always knew he was, like, 7 of a 7 of a 7 of a 7. Like, he was born July 7, 1917, on a a Saturday, which is the 7th day of the 7th month, and the year ending in 7 on the 7th day of the week. So this was all coincides with the 7th circle of the moon and all this stuff. And and I knew that, but I didn't know it involved another country called Banisha or Banisha. And he becomes king of this country, and he's kidnapped to go there, and then gets away, and then goes back, and... Huh? There's a lot. There's a lot there. I didn't know about Peachy Pet, his adopted daughter. I had no idea about any of that <laughs> when, when I read this. I was like, Arr. so. Um, so on with the douchiness. Go ahead. Well, I mean, look. It's writers have retroactively written him that way. Roy Thomas, especially, they tended to write him. Uh, first of all, he has no powers. Like all he does, he base. You know, he's a hero who gets another hero to do his work for him. Which, you know, right, come on. <laughs> um, and then just like, again, Roy Thomas wrote him uh, in that later crazy revamping of Black Canary's origin where we find out that the Black Canary 2 is actually the daughter of the first Black Canary, but it's got the memory of the mother of her mother. And they talk about that, like, he felt... I thought, uh, I thought Jerry Conway wrote that. They wrote it together. Wrote it oh, together. okay. Um, and you... you um, uh, you, you find out that, you know, Johnny Thunder had a giant crush on Black Canary, which you can understand. But then in that origin, when she says, look, I'm with Larry Lance, he basically tells her to F off. And it's just like they just either wrote him as a goof or very bitter. And it's just like, ugh, you know, but hey, that, that that's a modern construction for the most part. You could totally do a great series with this character. I really I think like I said I, I am so in love with the art that, you know, I would forgive all that. Stuff because again, that was just some writers decided to just go with it and make him kind of a clown. He said he was either a clown or a jerk, you know, neither one is good. But again, I am in love with this listing, it's my favorite listing of the book. Oh, wow, okay. Now, it's fair to say though that you know, I think you put Steve Lealoha on anything with a slight, um, fun aspect to it, and it'd be a comic I'd want to read. Yeah, well, he's a great artist, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did he ever do any comics on a monthly basis? On a monthly basis, I think he's done a lot of independent stuff. Um, okay. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. He drew. He he was he'd been involved in some stuff. I remember he did like Secret Wars two or some weird series, which no, yeah, which even he admitted like I was not the right guy for that. You know. He's, oh, that comic was trash. Yeah, he's kind of like a very like interviews with him. I think he would re- regard himself as this as kind of the sort of gentle hippie guy, and so he seems to fit like that kind of. Material and you would think Secret Wars too. You know, like, huh? <laughs> Not the right guy for that. Man, the Beyonder with the Jerry curl yeah, and the white Michael Jackson yeah, suit. Exactly. Oh well, god, yeah. that thing was so bad. Yeah, so. Um, interesting, because I just, I just think that after I've seen enough Steve Lay Aloha recently, like um, my buddy Scott Gardner from Two True Freaks sort of like drew my attention to Steve Lay Aloha with his um, love professing, 
And now I, I pay more attention to him. It's just like, oh, I like everything I see by him. Right, of course. And he drew so. the listing for Cheetah. Oh, that's the Earth right. Cheetah, the Earth 2 Cheetah. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Look at that. All right. Okay. Uh, and this is the only time Steve drew Johnny Thunder, by the way. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to Johnny Thunder. Thunder Johnny Thunder. <laughs> Completely different kind of Johnny Thunder. This is the Cowboy Johnny Thunder by Gil Kane. Now, this character uh, was around in the 1950s, legitimately, and not just Shag thought he was. He really was around in the 1950s, uh, which Gil Kane drew it. And he had something like, I don't know, about 30 different appearances. So he was, he was a pretty recurring character in uh, all-American Western. And, uh, man, let me tell you, I, I've, on this show, I have said there's been some good Gil Kane entries and there's been some straight-up bad Gil Kane entries. This one is beautiful. Glad you said that. This is a great piece. Oh, my gosh. You got in the foreground, you've got Johnny Thunder down on one knee, you know, blanging away at it. Or I don't know what you call that when you're banging the, the hammer on the gun and shooting it, you know, cowboy style. In his, his face in shadows with the hat. Just the, the clothes are in motion. It almost looks a little Simonson-esque. It's a I – mean, but Gil Kane came first, make no mistake. But anyway, really nice shot of him. And then the Serpent – takes it up a notch. Uh, you've got the shot, the close-up of Johnny Thunder in his civilian identity. I swear to God, he looks like Clark Kent. I mean, he looks like a really nice, solid Superman, uh, but not like a rip-off of Superman, but just looks like a nice shot. you got him riding a horse. Uh, you've got then him in plain clothes. Oppositely in a nice design is uh, Madame 44, who is sort of his nemesis, eventual wife, who, by the way, is really hot. And uh, it's a really, really nice piece. Yes, yeah, I love the logo. Everything's great. This this, this looks like a um, like you talked about Johnny Peril being in like an '80s TV series. This was totally a late '50s TV series. Oh yeah, it is. Right after oh, Gunsmoke. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and his origin's kind of cool. It's a guy who it's it's almost like it's little hints of Daredevil or. Or Daredevil would be hints of this. He is, is he's the son of a, a sheriff and a and a teacher, and on the and his mom dies, and on her deathbed she says, "Promise me you won't, you know, use a, use bullets. Uh, you'll use brains, and you'll teach kids, and all this stuff." And you know, so he agrees to his mom's thing, goes becomes a teacher. His dad wants him to become a, a sheriff, and so there's a lot of tension there with his dad. Now that his mother's passed, he's trying to fulfill her wish, and in the end, he ends up. He doesn't want to break his mom's rules, so he doesn't want to become a sheriff-type character or deputy or whatever it was. So, but instead, he takes makes his own costumed identity. And it's like in the Old West, you know, how do you make a costume identity? Well, he would buy, what was it called? Disguise powder or something like that? <laughs> um, costumer's hair dust. So he would turn his blonde hair black with costumer's hair dust to appear black. And then he'd wear a helmet, kind of sort of, or not a helmet, he'd wear a hat. Very low-strung hats. You couldn't see his eyes and everything. He looked like a completely different dude. So, pretty cool. Yes, very cool. Very nice. And again, makes me want to go find these comics and read them. Yeah, I would agree. It, it looks like it was probably a fun, almost superhero western, you know. So, all right. Here you go, folks. Here's your marquee entry Finally for the Finally an A-lister. <laughs> it's an A-list character, but not an A-list drawing. I um, hate to... Could, I hate to uh, Agree with that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. This he deserved uh, two pages. He needed two pages. He is the most famous supervillain of all time. 
Uh, he's got a ton of history. He needed two pages. You know what? I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He, the, the pose, the drawing itself is great. It's Marshall Rogers, rest in peace. Um, but the pose is, <laughs> is very dull. Have we actually said it's the Joker? I don't know if we actually uh, verbalized maybe, yeah, that. I think everybody did. Yeah, the Joker, <laughs> yes, by yeah. Marshall Rogers. It, it's the greatest Joker logo ever. Uh, it's, I believe it's probably originated with his own mo- monthly comic when he had it, or bi-monthly comic, <laughs> uh, which is crazy that he had his yeah, own series. Yeah, when you think about that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, as he says, Marshall Rogers, who is – Marshall Rogers is pretty famous for drawing the Joker because there's some really, really, really important – I shouldn't say important, but really well-regarded issues of detective comics, uh, issues 471 to 476. They were done in 1977 and 1978. And they really were sort of defining issues for the Joker of that era. Because, like, in the old days, he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a crazy, maniacal murderer, psychopath. And um, in the 50s, they really mellowed him out, you know, to be more the jokey uh, Batman. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. He became the policeman's friend, you know, or, or Batman did, and Joker got softened too. Became more of the other crook trying to pull off a heist. And then here in the in the '70s, you know, Denny O'Neill came along and decided to take the character back to his roots and make him more of a maniacal killer, which is where he is nowadays too. And well, you know, a lot that of at this point. what's that? Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that at this point. Marshall uh, Rogers played an important role in that, so he was definitely the go-to guy for this. But it's just the, the drawing doesn't quite work. I, I think a lot it's of it has a very to... boring pose. I mean, just for a guy who's like this, this crazy energetic killer. That's just a very. He's just sort of standing there. Well, the face isn't working either. Mm. It's really not. Um, here's here's another thing to test that goes to a testament to what Rob said that it needs uh, two pages. Is that of the text piece of the Joker? Uh, they actually go into his origin, which is we're going to talk about in a second. But three quarters of the entire entry is his origin. Right. You only get one quarter of the of the thing, which takes place after his origin. Right. And, and considering the character appeared fully formed, you know, like his first appearance was post his origin. You, you think they'd have make time for uh, for in the entry for all his other stuff he's done. So, um, really, and really, the big thing you get out of this is his origin, and then yes, he's returned to to his murderous ways. So. Um, I do like in the serpent. I dig the giant playing card. I dig, uh, ooh, his serpent is two colors. It is, and on the playing card and the laughter. The, the, I like the laughter circling him. That's kind of a nice touch. Yeah, it is. But I think this is the first serpent we've ever seen in two colors. Maybe so. Um, and there's a nice shot of him as the Red Hood swimming through the murky chemical bath, which is nice. Now, I, in preparation for this, I did a little research on the Joker's origin because, again, three-quarters of this entry is his origin. And if you know anything about the Joker, they don't usually lock down his origin. Uh, Killing Joke's the best example of they give you an origin, but the Joker straight up says, this origin's different than the way I remember it sometimes. I remember it differently I prefer my origin to be multiple choice. Right. I mean, that's sort of become – I don't know if that started with Killing Joke, but I mean that's sort of the defining thing of the Joker is no one really knows. I mean everyone knows he was the Red Hood at one point, but they don't know much about him before that. His name probably was Jack. You know, that seems to be pretty re- recurring. Anyway, the first time Joker's origin was ever mentioned was in 1951. So keep in mind the character had been around 11 years at that point because he was introduced in 1940. In fact, they were going to kill him in his second appearance. Did you know that? I don't know. I don't think I did. 
I didn't know that either. They were going to kill him in his second appearance, but then uh, I think it was the editor or something said, well, you know, wait, let's, uh, <laughs> let's hang on to the character. So they very hastily changed like the last panel or so hmm. to show him getting away somewhere that he survived. So kind of, DC's probably thankful they did that. Yeah, anyway, a bit. so it was Detective Comics number 168, February 1951, where they first told the Joker's origin. And it's pretty much what's here in this entry. You know, it's, it's, and, it, and it's actually not that far off from Killing Joke. He is a lab assistant who decides to pull off a bunch of crimes. He dresses up as the Red Hood. Uh, a heist goes wrong. Fighting Batman ends up jumping in the vat, a vat of chemicals to get away. Swims away, thinking his hood will protect him. But when he, uh, when he takes the hood off, he's been exposed to all the chemicals. His skin is white. He's crazy. He's all screwed up. Which Killing Joke um, was pretty much the same. He was a lab assistant who decided to become a comedian. And then uh, you get to all the other stuff. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the origin you know. And, and I was kind of surprised to read that. I expected to not read an origin or I expected it to be different from what I knew. Yeah, it's, it's just yeah, it's good, but just sort of a missed opportunity. Yeah. And, and again, Joker's face. You know, I wonder if... Um, Oh, I forget who it was. I just read about this tonight. The Joker was supposedly intentionally based on a live person, a real person. Like the face, they said, he needs to look like this dude. Hmm. And I wonder if that's what Marshall Rogers was going for here because the face in the background and the serpent is very exact. And I wonder if that was an attempt to look like the original actor they sort of decided the Joker looked like. Hmm. I don't, don't think I knew that. Rather than his iconic appearance in the forties, right? Now, there's there's varying there's varying uh, stories, by the way, connected to that. So, I mean, don't take my word as gospel on that because what's you've got like three people that are involved in the creation of Joker, and each of them has a little bit of different version on what happened and who gets should get credit. <laughs> How appropriate! Exactly. Um, <laughs> I didn't think about that, but um, it, one of the things is like they say that this famous guy. Is who the Joker looks like, and that the guy, one of the creators came in and said, "Okay, make the Joker look like this." And then another version says the Joker was created, and someone said came in and said, "Hey, look at that! He looks like this dude." So, which version is true? I don't know, but either way, they all hone in on he looks like a famous actor. So. Okay. All right. So, all right. Next up, uh, our only two-page spread, I think. Yeah. Going back, yeah, our only two-page of the spread of the book. Uh, it's somewhat merited, but you probably should have gone to the Joker because the second half of this probably wasn't worth talking about, except that they were publishing it at the time. Uh, we get Jonah Hex and Hex. Huh. <laughs> Is that all you got? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I love Jonah Hex, but the Hex thing just didn't. Yeah. Uh, interesting, sort of an odd art pairing for this one. Uh, your inker is Tony Dizaniga, but your art is by Mark uh, Teixeira. No, it's Mark Teixeira, the famous baseball player. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> they, misspelled, guy. they misspelled his name. It is not Teixeira as it's listed here. It's Teixeira. Okay. It's actually T-E-X rather than T-E-I-X. Okay. So, because I, I went to go check his name on something and I typed it in as it was here. And I kept coming up with a baseball player, and I'm like, huh? And then I looked at it, sure enough, they misspelled his name. Aw. Poor guy. So, anyway, didn't know his middle name was Woodson. Uh, Jonah Hex's middle name was Woodson, I by the way. I didn't know that either. 
Yep. Didn't know that. Um, it was kind of interesting. His son, the the name he selected for his son was unnamed. Kind of interesting. And uh, it, but it was okay because I mean he was probably named after his father-in-law because his father-in-law's name was also unnamed. So. Okay. Now seriously, take a look at that. Look in the known relatives. The way they I did see it. it. Yes. Yeah. Usually they would say unnamed son, but here it says unnamed and then in parentheses son. That's- <laughs> that implies the son's name is unnamed. <laughs> Same thing with father-in-law. Father-in-law, in parentheses, or you know, father-in-law in parentheses, and then unnamed. So it's how interesting. <laughs> anyway, horrible, horrible, sad stuff. I read through this. I got depressed. I almost had to go, like, cry for a while. I mean, Jonah Hex gets sold into slavery by his own dad, who's always treated him like crap anyway. Once again, father uh, issues. Oh, man. So his dad sells him into slavery. He ends up with an Indian tribe who treat him like crap, but he eventually becomes a functioning member of the tribe. And then one of the other Indians backstab him, basically, I mean, not literally, but screw him over. And he ends up getting in trouble with all parties. The Indians hate him. You know, the, 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 the law hates him. Then he gets caught up in the Civil War, joins the Confederate side, realizes he's on the wrong side, switches. So now the Confederates hate him. He goes to the Union. They set him up take the blame for something they hate him it's like oh my god this poor dude and i lost count of the number of times he freaking got shot and that's not even in the comic that's just here in the description um just what a what a crazy world so and here it is um this is an important thing here here we go uh talking about where hex lives in the future um it is not yet known how much of the world – oh, I completely forgot to mention. Oh, yeah, there's this little thing where he gets dragged to the future. I totally forgot to mention that just now, didn't I? Where he stops being Jonah Hex and becomes Hex. Uh, or, or to be exact, the Jonah Hex monthly comic was canceled and was picked up with a new book called Hex where Hex was literally scooped out of time from the 1800s and dragged to the year 2060 A.D. in a very Mad Max post-apocalyptic world. And uh, they say, here, Hex, go fight people and stuff. And, um, oh, man. Yeah, that, I didn't. Was that, yeah, I, uh, did, you, did you read that comic? I did. And, uh, you know, I mean, if I have to be completely fair, I didn't read the original Jonah Hex by the end of its run. Um, so, you know, they had to do something. But I just didn't, I, you know, I just look at this now and I'm like, oh, this just feels like such a bastardization of the, of a, Per- perfectly fine core concept. I don't know why. Again, like Hawkman, why is Jonah Hex that hard to write? You know, just do it straight. I mean, and then they've been doing it right in All Star Western now, yeah. things like that. So you know, just just you know, they and they they goofed it up for the movie. They gave him like superpowers in the movie. It's like it's, <laughs> you know, uh, I feel like this whole thing is kind of a missed opportunity because the poses for both of them are very boring as well. Um, Mark uh. Teixeira had a lot of space, and to me, these are really very kind of dull images. So, yeah. The Serpent's nice. Yes, the Serpent is great. This was like a movie poster, a Jonah Hex movie poster. But the, mm. the, the, the front pose of the two of them are just kind of like, ugh. Um, and it gets sad. Jonah Hex had a sad end because, like, he ends up getting, going back to the Old West somehow. I forget how, but he ends up going back to his own timeline, and he ends up being stuffed. And carted around as a sideshow attraction. So you could, like, visit the stuffed corpse of Jonah Hex. 
So creepy, yeah. He ended up in 1972 at a Westworld amusement park. Yeah, it's really creepy. I mean, it's great. Uh, it, it's great that they're going to let a character like have that end, but it's just kind of sad and creepy. Well, what I got to imagine is, I mean, it was very specific. It was in 1972. So I got to imagine there was like a Jonah Hex story in 1972 where they kind of said, whatever happened to Jonah Hex? It's kind of, and they told that one story. It's kind of how I envisioned it. It's like I don't think anyone had a vision for him to be a stuffed corpse, and that's what was going to happen to him. I think it was just someone told an offbeat, you know, future story that sort of became canon rather than being a possible well, future. Well, no, because that's what happens to him at the end of his final issue of the regular series. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yes, it ends. It ends on a very dark note. It was drawn by Keith Giffen, and it draws on like this dark note where he's like draped in shadow, and then you see the corpse, and, and then then they're led, then there's this big plug at the end for. You know, go buy the new series Hex starting next month. That kind of thing. For realsies? Mm-hmm. Something like that. That's how I remember it. I have to go read that again. But it was something like that. Yeah. That's twisted. Yeah. All right. Well, here's the part where you know he's in this Mad Max future, and it says here in the entry, and this is this is where Crisis finally hit home. Uh, it, number ten did. It is not yet known how much of the world was ravaged by the Holocaust, nor is it known whether Hex's twenty two thousand fifty meaning the year, occurs before or after all but one alternate future are eliminated in the so-called Crisis on Infinite Earths. So, like, if I, I don't know, was behind by a week or two in reading my comics, and I read Who's Who first before uh, Crisis, I would have been like, crap! What the hell? Really? You're going to do that? Why don't you just print the Darth Vader's Luke's dad at the same time? Really? <laughs> So, I mean, just really, I mean, it only had been a couple weeks, dude. Uh, that's sort of like how I found out about the Flash dying. I, I read it in a DC Comics role-playing game, and I was like, do-do-do, hey, Flash. Well, he's dead, huh? You know, so, anyway. Uh, okay. So, I could talk more about the Jonah Hex entry. I don't really care to talk about the Hex entry. So, yep. moving on. We get to our third... Third and thankfully final entry for Johnny Thunder. Um, this one's Johnny, uh, no H, Johnny Thunder, a.k.a. Thunderbolt. Uh, this is a mid-80s attempt to revitalize the Johnny Thunder character by making it a woman. And rather than summoning a, a lightning bolt, she actually becomes the lightning bolt herself. And uh, Dick Giordano does the art, which is very nice. I, I like the art quite a bit. I don't know who wrote the Johnny Thunder miniseries. I think it was Roy Thomas. Okay. Well, after reading her entry, I don't want to ever read the miniseries. <laughs> it's just like, I, it was a re, I really had to slog through it. And I'm not really sure I read every word of it well, by the end I'm of gonna it. Well, I'm going to have to return that Johnny, Thumbs, Johnny Thunder Absolute Edition I bought you for your birthday. Oh, damn! <laughs> uh, I, I always thought... And, apparently, and I did a little research on this. Apparently, I was wrong. Uh, I always thought that she was the Earth One Johnny Thunder. Like, you know, you had Johnny Thunder in the JSA and, and Earth Two. And I thought, oh, well, this must be the Earth One Johnny Thunder. You know, that would make sense, right? Because they would always do that. They would always do an Earth Two character and then an Earth One character. No, she's Earth Two as well. So, and then, you know, by the time this issue hits the shelves, by two weeks, I guess she's no longer Earth Two. She's just on Earth because there's only one timeline. But, um,. It's just nothing, man. Nothing on this. Interesting tidbit. Uh, you've read Kingdom Come? Yes. There's a character called Lightning in that book. 
who is the daughter of Black Lightning. And in fact, they brought the character back for uh, one of the recent incarnations of the Justice Society of America uh, as, as Jefferson Pierce's daughter, Lightning. Anyway, in Kingdom Come, Lightning is the daughter of Black Lightning and Johnny Thunder. Okay. Mm, I don't think I knew that, or if I did, I forgot. That's interesting. Had to be in the liner notes, because I don't remember that in the comic. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and, and that is not the case for the version of Lightning that joined the Justice Society later uh, in modern day, but it's just, that's just the case for the Kingdom Come. Right. So, uh, I my, think final note, my final note here is not interesting. Ooh. I, I mean, I think this is a very nice drawing. Dick Giordano drew women exceptionally well. He, uh, by his own admission, was not big on characters with superpowers. Like, he liked Batman. He liked people with not powers. And he liked detective stuff. And so I feel like the whole sticking of the Thunderbolt was sort of like a sop to comic book fans. So it's like, well, they're not going to buy just a PI series. So we got to give her superpowers. And that's the part to me that sat uneasily in the book. I, I bought the miniseries at the time. And I remember liking it because I love Dick Giordano's artwork. And I'm, you know, I, I liked, I really liked Roy Thomas as a writer. Um, but the, every time the Thunderbolt part of it came in, I was like, eh, you know, and obviously most people felt that way because she never came back after that mini, I mean, not say never, but she did not get her own series after the miniseries. Yeah. And she got a pretty big push when that miniseries yeah, came oh, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, I think, you know, I mean, it's got one of the, one of their premier writers behind it and, and, and <laughs> what? I just fell over. That's all. Oh, okay. You're <laughs> what? You're laughing at No, I, I fell into a big bucket of Star Wars uh, action figures my stepson was playing with a little earlier. Okay. Um, I'm, having, I'm having to walk around to stay awake because we're talking about Johnny Thunder. All right. Anyway. I'll wrap it up. Okay. It's not a big concept, not a great, not great execution, though. So, and that's the end of the issue. It, it is interesting that um, so they, they took talking. the effort – to draw the girl Johnny Thunder and then the Thunderbolt very differently, like like the girl who, when she's Thunderbolt, I mean she's very curvy and, and uh, mm-hmm. womanly, mm-hmm. and when she's Johnny Thunder, she's very lean and, and hardcore, yeah, hard edged, and more, petite. Yeah, a little more asexual as, as in yeah. her PI clothes. So, all right, and then uh, you get your wrap up page, one of my favorite pages in every issue, which is the one where they tell you where everyone's going to be. It, it starts off really sad. It's like Ice Cold met his fate in crisis. Immortal Man gave his life in crisis. It's like, oh, jeez. <laughs> um, but then I get to Inferior 5. The Inferior 5 were last seen running from something. <laughs> I love that. And then, um, you know, the the Joker. Interesting. Just says the Joker will... Uh, Joker pops up occasionally in Batman and will receive his own graphic novel. That's got to be Killing Joke in development. That's all I can I think. I would think so, yeah. I mean, it's Killing Joke was, what, 89, I think? Because it was about the same time as the movie, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was before. You know, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, so but it's in that up. era, yeah, 88, 89. And so this is 86, so I think it's probably that. You know, because, I mean, Alan Moore was already working for DC. It's yeah, not like that, he was a new that had guy, to so. be it. That had to be it. Yep. Uh, I love some of the pictures here. Like, I love seeing Crisis. I always love seeing Crisis. You get an issue number 11, which wasn't on the stands yet. It was still a week or two away, so that cover was probably like everyone's probably like, whoa, what's going on there? Uh, you get a cool <laughs> Legion cover. Uh, I love the hand reaching out for them. You get a nice Sergeant Rock. You get Elvira's House of Mystery, which was a very short, if only one page or one issue. Th- I mean, was there ever an issue, too? Elvira's House of Mystery? Yeah. Yeah, it ran for like two years. Really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, take a look at this uh, black and white stat of it. Who does she look like? I don't know. I don't know what you're going for. 
She looks like a very buxom death from Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. Well, sure, they're all sort of based, they're all, yeah. So it's just kind of, because in black and white, it's like, oh, she looks like death. Right. And then uh, the, the, the one, it's, you know, childhood's weird. Like, uh, the one cover on here that I remember the most from my childhood is a comic I never read. But it always was so ridiculous to me as a kid, I never forgot it. And it's the Hex cover. Uh, with it, you got the girl, and she's like, you blew it, cowboy. Um, I can't even read what that says. Something, nobody, nobody walks out on Stiletta. <laughs> Hex takes on an entire army and, and wins, almost, the origin of Stiletta. And I was like, that is the stupidest name. And it's just like, and the costume was kind of silly looking. It is just, even as a kid, that one, like, I remember that one sat at the convenience store for, like, months. Nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> it was like, it was always, like, in my way of finding my new issue of Secret Wars or, uh, or Secret Wars 2 or whatever was coming ooh, out in the 80s. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> may have made a wrong decision there. I may have. I did buy all of Secret Wars 2, and I'm pretty sure I bought every single one of the tie-ins. Oh, I did the same really... for, uh, I did the same for Legends, though, so, you know, I did something right. Eh. <laughs> wow, you did, whoa, waha, what just happened? You did not just, wah, on Legends. I did. You know what, let's, let's go to listener feedback. Come on, we're, come on. All right, all right. <laughs> I've talked a lot. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna give my uh, vocal cords a little bit of a break here, Rob. When do you when do you when do you take the lead here for okay. me? Okay. Well, we got listener feedback, of course, and we got a ton of it as we, as we always do. It is very very much appreciated. Before we get into it, though, I just want to mention last issue we had the letters page. We talked about the letters page in the uh, Who's Who book, and there was a letter from someone named Phil Jimenez. And we were, oh. we were wondering whether that was the Phil Jimenez. It, in fact, is. I wrote Mr. Jimenez and friends with him on Facebook, and I asked him, and he said, yep, that was him. So that letter that was in that issue was, in fact, from the Phil Jimenez. Awesome sauce. There you go. Um, okay, so the first email, we got a comment on Firestorm Fan. I'm just going to lean right into the skid here and admit it. Uh, for some Count Druncula. I posted this. <laughs> I posted this on the Aquaman Shrine and on the Firewater Podcast blog, but you're right, Shag, and Rob is wrong. In Hawkman's first appearance in Flash Comics number one, Hawkman's flight is credited to Carter Hall discovering the secret of the ages, the ninth metal. So I was completely wrong. It was always it was ninth metal in the beginning. It wasn't nth metal, and that was a mistake. The thing that frustrates me about that is I have that comic sitting on my shelf about, let's say as I'm looking, less than five feet away from me as I'm recording this. I could have leaned over, pulled the book out, and made sure I was right, but I didn't. So that is totally my bad. Um... Yeah, I was completely and utterly wrong. It was, in fact, nice metal in the beginning. So, as, <laughs> as like, 19 of you felt the need to point out. So, there you go. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's give credit real quick. Count Druncula does a webcomic called Red and Green. You can read that at redandgreencomic.tumblr.com. Oh, very good. Um, uh, he also mentions that I was talking to my friend Paul about the new 52 books Men of War and Jedi Combat and someone's theory that DC never expected these anthology books to last very long but to release them only as a way to maintain control over properties like The War of the Time for God and Haunted Tank. Paul said, Haunted what now? And I proceeded to tell him about it. After about 30 seconds, he declared Haunted Tank his favorite thing in the world. Paul, the way, Paul by the way, is my partner on the webcomic Red and Green. <laughs> I can understand that. You know, when you hear something that just sounds so crazy, you're like, I gotta read that. That sounds fantastic. Right. And uh, he's like me. Uh, when he thinks of Huntress, he also thinks of Helen Bertinelli, um, the Huntress, the post-crisis Huntress. To me, that's who Huntress is, regardless of her original appearances as Selena Wayne. Okay. Heard from our, our buddy Siskoid. Uh, interesting thing here. 
where uh, he says that um, we talked about the dog Pooch and uh, in the Gunner and Sarge entry, mm-hmm. and he says, "Did you know they retroactively made Rex the made Pooch Rex the Wonder Dog's brother?" Oh, for God's sakes! That is ridiculous. Oh, I couldn't God. believe that when I George read that. George Lucas has just poisoned us all. <laughs> and uh, this is just a fun fact because I love role-playing stuff. He talks about how he would take entries from Who's Who, trace them, and then create characters, fr- like designs for characters that his friends were role-playing in their games. So I love that. I totally did the same thing, not with Who's Who, but with my Marvel Universe. So I think that's great. I love it. And then uh, with Halo. Yeah, yeah uh, I was glad you were going to read that. I wanted to read that part. <laughs> now, Rob, to be fair, Rob, by the way, collected this this time uh, for me, which I really appreciate, Rob. By the way, however you formatted it, scared the crap out of me. When I opened the file, it said 62 pages. I about crapped an egg roll. I was like, oh, my God. Is that a but phrase? It happened to, uh, yeah. But uh, it's not crapping, though. It's something else. Horrible. Anyway, <laughs> it would hurt because they're dry. All right, 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 right. Anyway. Sorry I asked. <laughs> anyway, um, formatting it, I got it down to like 19 pages. But anyway, um, so you bolded some stuff, and it, most of that disappeared. It shows up some places, so okay. I may say stuff you intended to. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, so Halo, there's a bit in here where Rob was trying to identify a villain. And uh, he goes to Donnie. Siskoid is well known for his hatred of the Outsiders. He's gone on record many times. And he says here, the villain? Is that Meltdown maybe? And then in all caps, I don't want to check because Outsiders. <laughs> Just, it's like the sentence isn't even complete, but it the works. Lack of the, the lack of articles is what cracked me up about it. It's not because of the Outsiders. Or because of maybe the outsiders, because outsiders. That's just it. So, you know, oh. Batman and the Outsiders is one of those things that I love unconditionally, and but I also understand why people hate it. You know, like I see its flaws and I see why it would drive some people nuts, but I love it. <laughs> I just read an issue of it last night. I was like, you know what? I love this book unreservedly. I, you know, I just do. All right, since we're just off the reservation for a moment, my, my 13-year-old a couple weeks ago read a ton of New Teen Titans comics in, like, a very compressed period of time. You read, like, 40 issues in, like, four days. Uh, it's summer. He's got nothing better to do. And I, so I dig out my Teen Titans, and he's actually read more of them than I have now. Anyway, uh, they did that crossover with uh, Batman and the Outsiders. Right. And so what I did was I, I left out the Batman Insiders, Outsiders. I had to leave out the showcase because I couldn't find the issue. Anyway, uh, I was like, hey, you know, how you, how you been enjoying reading the Titans? Oh, they're good. And then I found out he'd skipped a few issues. I'm like, oh. Well, what did you think of the Outsiders issue? He's like, oh, I hated that comic. I hated that. I was like, oh, I didn't even finish it. I hated that comic. I'm like, wow. It could have been because it was in black and white. It was a showcase. You know, it could have been that. He is 13, so, you know, his attention span is pretty short. But uh, he was really passionate about not liking that comic. Oh, well. You win some, you lose some. There's a bit in here in Siskoi's comments, and, and I thought about this too, but I wasn't bad enough to mention it. I'm glad he did and gave me an excuse to. Uh, we talked about we were wondering how the wives of the JSA members stayed so young. He says the wives stayed young because of uh, sexually transmitted Ian Carcool. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Makes me laugh. Apparently. <laughs> Take it away. Okay. You said you wanted me to talk and then I said one thing and then you just went on. So, okay. Uh, I was trying to, trying to contribute. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think you've done enough. Um, 
<laughs> I've, I've damaged enough here today. Cisco also talks about uh, Hercules Unbound. If there's a problem with the first appearance, it's that Wonder Woman number one would have featured an Earth 2 Hercules, right? And Unbound had to be Earth 1 because the Atomic Knights were in it. We need a crisis to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got, uh, of course, we got a letter from Frank uh, from the Idlehead of Diablo. Leads off, you know, point number A. I used to try to work out ways for Hawkman to use the Blackhawks cry, too. I understand you in this moment, Rob. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, he mentions, oh, and Halo. Oh, here, again, with Halo. Oh, and Halo. The sky would simply crumble upon our collective heads if this stupid effed-up origin of Halo and her rainbow sperm contrast egg mega fertilization demonstration unitard was made available in a reference source. I love that sentence. That is just a hell of a sentence. Our lives are enriched by frigging Halo, right? How long will this take, Baba? How long have we been sleeping? Do you see me hanging on to every word you say? Uh, uh, he moves on later on. He says, I won't raz Tom O'Hawk on account of Robin Frank Thorne. Isolate the main figure hanging on a ball as a pop art print. Um, Steve Ditko created Hawk and Dove as propaganda to use Hawk as his proxy to belittle hippies. Steve Skeets then wrote his script specifically to undermine Ditko's point and build up Dove, which is why Quitko Dit Ditko quit early into the into the mere six-issue run of their crappy series. I hate these characters <laughs> lots, but not screwing with them in our current political environment is a missed opportunity. Instead, we get the movement, which makes my bowels irritable. Oh, oh Lord. I mean, that's too much of that. I love Frank so much. They do, yeah. Um, regardless, he talks about Hawkman. Regardless, the Cubert piece is stunning and clearly owns the Anderson one, assisted at least in part by Hawkman's best ever logo. I have an affection for the Thanagar stuff, but it's such a blatant flash cord and ripoff that I have to prefer the Golden Age one, if only on the grounds of intellectual property ethics. No Shadow War of the Hawkman trade. Also, no God. Best to just get used to the idea now, kids. <laughs> we got, um... We got an, an, a comment from Anthony Durso, a.k.a. The Toy Room. He mentions Gunner and Sarge. Didn't the losers die differently in their Crisis tie-in special than they did in Crisis and Infinite Earth number three? I seem to recall that the two stories didn't jive with one another. That is absolutely true. I bought that loser special, and they die in the war, and then they die in Crisis. So I was like, what the hell are you talking You know, I just sort of gave up. Um, on Hawkman, Son of Tomahawk. I haven't cared for these characters since I was hornswoggled into buying Superman salutes the Bicentennial. Oh my Which god! Is absolutely true. For anyone who doesn't know that book, it's super. You know, as the cover would indicate, Superman saluting the Bicentennial. He's on the cover, and then on the and then on the first page, he's like, you know, Happy July Fourth, kids. Let me tell you some stories that feature Tomahawk. And then the whole book is just Tomahawk reprints. So, oh as my a, and it's not the cool son of Tomahawk. It's kind of dull fifties Tomahawk. So I remember as a kid buying that comic and definitely feeling ripped off. I was like, wait a minute, I paid for <laughs> Superman. What the hell is this? Uh, he, one of the things he said about the cover here, he said, by this point, I'm pretty much burned out on these Paris Collins covers anyway. Uh, one thing that really irks him is that uh, the massive exodus from the back cover to the front, it just, he says, just looks like an utter mess. Hmm. No, I'm not going dis to disagree. Okay, fair enough. Uh, he also made one more good point. Harbinger, it must be a bitch for anyone else to draw a Perez design costume besides George Perez. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. So true. Um, Little Russell Burbage from uh, Dixville Notch wrote, and he said, okay, what the hell's going on with Hyena? So somehow Summer Day changes into a male wear hyena? How crazy is that? And by crazy, I mean stupid. 
Besides that, even the, <laughs> besides that, even this character is buck naked. Her groin is perpetually in shadow. Shag, if you call foul that Hourman's mask is always in shadow, how can Summer's lack of penis always be hidden? Why didn't she keep her pants on and make the whole question about its gender moot? Sorry, but until he she shows some true nudity or puts some clothes on, I give this character two thumbs way down. Wow, it's rough. <laughs> and then Doug Doug Zawizza followed up with, "I love Raphael Kanigan, but why did he draw a hyena doing a touchdown dance?" <laughs> <laughs> um, That's so funny. And then Frank followed up some more with his points going so far into double letters. He went from A to Z, and then the A A B B C Z. So we get down to F F. Thought I forgot Hop Harrigan. How could there have not been a horrific fate dreamed up by some modern-day hack by now, or at least revealed that he was really, one, a reincarnation of Prince Khufu, two, an alias of the resurrection Immortal Man, three, the grandfather of some lame chromium-age character in, in need of a legacy to get them covered in JSA All-Star spot? That's oh absolutely true. That is absolutely, that is right on, Frank. Well, I, I bet DC's lost the rights to him. Because uh, he, you know, he went on to do movies and stuff like that. I mean, they right. point, a lot of the listeners pointed that out to us. By the yeah, way, yeah, he was like, in a movie movies. serial, yeah, yeah. Which I should have known because, like, the minute they said that, I'm like, oh, of course he was. Yeah. But um, so it 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 doesn't make sense for them not to do something with a character that had movies at any point, even just appear well, in I don't know a black box issue. Forty eight, though. I mean, no, nobody, you know, nobody can even see that thing anymore because it's a movie serial. So. Well, I'm just wondering if uh, they lost the rights somehow to the well, character. Well, they wouldn't have been in Who's Who if they lost the rights. Maybe. No, I'm sure they still own the rights to them. I think they just like, <laughs> nobody wants to do anything with them. All right. Um, we got an email from Ange. We got a, a, yeah, well, a comment from Ange from the Supergirl blog. Um, Harpus, or Harpies. I love Sean McManus's art on Omega Man, one of the few things I did love about that book. I find it ironic that Blackfire and the Citadel are responsible for her powers as Komandar was created the same way, Elliot with a dose of Scion science in there. I think the sexy pick in the Serpent is Harpus before her transformation. Yes, absolutely. Hawk and Dove. I hate to admit that I like this character, but I like the female Dawn as Dove much, much more. The changing of Dove from being a pacifist to an agent of order. I agree with Rob. How can you be a superhero if you don't want to act? Well, I don't like Rob Leefield. I was bummed that Sterling Gates didn't get more of a chance on the new 52 version. Oh, okay. I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about at that point. That's fine. It, it, the minute Rob Leefield popped up, I just lost all interest in that sentence. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, Ange here at the end chimes in. Um, he says, finally, I understand the hottest Legionnaire discussion is on the whole body of work of characters, not just their who's who pages. So everyone, be sure you're clear on that. The hot Legionnaire discussion, which is apparently a passionately discussed topic, uh, is about the, the breadth of the characters. She goes, well, I find it amusing to hear Shag declare Phantom Girl as the hottest Legionnaire when he talks about her who's who entry. I have not snuck a peek ahead for that very reason, by the way, for you uh, hardcore Legion guys at home. I've been a good boy, and I'm waiting to get to the P issue to go, oh, crap, that sucks. Because I keep getting the hints from everyone that it's pretty bad. <laughs> but Phantom Girl, still universally declared hottest Legionnaire. And then Ange followed up with, after looking at my last comment, I realized I wasn't exactly brief. And which is, as Siskoid points out, don't worry about the brevity, brevity Ange, the Who's Who podcast comment section is my favorite comment section of them all. Yeah, us too. I mean, it's we, we like getting this much feedback, so don't ever worry about being brief. Because, you know, that's the fun of it, is reading all these comments. So please keep it up, guys. Um, we got another comment from Keith Samra. Short and sweet. Awesome episode, guys. Really appreciated the high praise for the dude, Steve Rude, one of my favorite artists in the industry. Also, Jerry Ordway is most commonly referred to as the Ordster, or my personal favorite, Big Jerry. 
Yeah, but those aren't complimentary. Right. Well, they could be, but, you know, like they don't inherently – praise be his name. You know what that is instantly. You know? so, right. So that's exactly. what we're trying to come up with is something that immediately tells the listener that Jerry Ordway is awesome, if you didn't already yep. know that, of course. Uh, we got a comment from Kyle Benning who says, hello, Robin Shag, longtime listener, first-time writer, at least in depths like this. I recently went back and listened to all of these in order from the beginning. And by, rec- oh. and by recently, I mean the past five days at work. Thank you for putting out a great podcast that I can listen to at work. I have a few comments on the same past episodes before I can get on my breakdowns of episodes, issues 9 and 10. So he gives us a whole lot of comments. I want to jump down to this personal story that he told, which is really great. He says, here's my personal who's who story. I'm probably a little younger than a lot of people who share these stories, as I'm only 25. I first got into comics at a pretty young age, and I first... And as I first just looked at the pictures until I began to learn reading using comics, I inherited... That's okay. Rob's still doing that. (laughs) Keep reaching for the stars. I inherited a (laughs) fairly large comics collection from my dad's brothers, who unfortunately had MD and passed away. Being wheelchair-bound or going up in rural Iowa on a dairy farm, 10 miles outside of a small town of 500 people, there was little my uncles had for entertainment. So they got into comics and had subscriptions to comics like G.I. Joe, Transformers, Fantastic Four, Superman, Green Lantern, and many others, including Who's Who, Crisis, and even DC Sampler. Whoa! Whoa. Um, I could point out at this moment that, uh, you know, subscriptions to a rural farm in Iowa might be one of the reasons we might want to keep the post office around, but that's maybe for another discussion. Uh, anyway, he says, when they passed away, when I was very young, I inherited all of their comics. Some of these, such as The Burn, Fantastic Four, Husu, and Crisis, are arguably some of the greatest superhero comics ever produced. So I was incredibly spoiled growing up with my first exposure to comics being some of the greatest ever. I think that's why even though the comics were produced before I was born, the 80s will always be my favorite era, and definitely the definitely the era, especially with DC, that I identify with, that I identify with the most. Sadly, most of my issues are very worn out from being looked at so much less... Uh, looked at so much with less careful hands when I was little. Uh, I'm going to say that makes them awesome, actually. Um, I guess. Yeah, I, I, the next line where you say you should replace them. Yeah, I uh, guess it's time we should I, try to replace those copies with better conditions. No, don't do yeah. that. Do not do that. I mean, if you want to get a second copy, just so the first copy doesn't get beat to the point where it falls apart, do that, Kyle. But do not replace them. To me, my copy of Justice League number 200, which is the same copy I had that I bought off the stands in December 1981, which is all brown and beat up, that's what makes it beloved is that I've had it for 30 years. So, dude, don't don't replace them. Really, don't. Good, good example is I used to – I don't know if anybody ever used to read Milk and Cheese. It was funny, oh, funny independent. Yeah. yeah, Evan Dorkin, independent comic. I used to purposely take those comics, fold them up, uh, fo- put a fold in there vertically, and put them in my back pocket. Yep. <laughs> Take them with me. Because I, I wanted them to look beat. I wanted them to feel red. I wanted them to feel loved. And I would tell you, man, keep those. Like, I've, I've got my Secret Wars issue number two. Not Secret Wars two. Secret Wars volume one, number two. First comic I ever bought as a collector. Still the original issue. Cover's practically falling off. That's the way the comics should look, man. Now, um, I was going to share a personal story myself real quick if I could. I know we're probably running long in time, but it's who's who, so who cares? Um... I have recently discovered my comic book mac and cheese, my, my comic book uh, comfort food, and that is early 80s DC comics. I, I've always loved those stuff, but I've recently gone back. I've been, I've been reading, um, you know, I've talked to you about Sword of the Atom I've been reading. Obviously, we're reading Who's Who. I've been rereading these Firestorm comics. I, I, I've, you know, I'm gravitating towards 
uh, Atari Force. I'm reading uh, Nexus, which isn't DC, but it's the same time period. I'm, all this stuff that I find myself being attracted to recently, uh, Micronauts, is all like either late 70s or very early 80s. Like 1982 is kind of the year I seem to zero on the most. So I realized that's my comfort food in comics. That's where I live. That's in, even though I came into comics in 85, um, 83, 85, that's where I love, my passion is. So now I'm going to kind of make it my objective to read, either reread all my old comics from that era or seek out series that I've never read from that same era. Like a perfect example would be, um, what's it called? The one we talk about a lot here on the show by Jose Luis Garcia uh, Lopez, praise his name. Atari Force. I've got all the Atari Force sitting here from that era ready to read. So it's like, I, that's, that's my time, man. I, I found it. I found my piece. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't have to read as many new 52 books that I was to get my fix anymore. I found where my joy is. Okay. So find your joy folks. And it sounds like Kyle's joy is in those eighties comics from his uncles, which is an incredible story. And I'm so touched that he shared that with us and, uh, everyone else go, go find your joy and stick with it, man. Um, yeah, he wrote us a very, very long message, which was great. We loved all of it. I'm just going to skip down to the bottom here where he mentions, that's the end of my long nerd rant, but I can assure you, despite my lengthy rant, I do not live in my parents' basement like the guy in the letters column of Who's Who, volume number nine. <laughs> Is that uh, Bedard <laughs> great, or whatever? Great, great name? callback. It's really mm-hmm. nice to look back to these at a much better time of the DCU after each podcast brings so many back so many fun memories, and it's a nice escape to a much more enjoyable and all-around better era of the DCU compared to the sad new 52 DCU with its many glaring potholes and all-around editorial disdain for DCU world builders of the past like Jurgens, Ordway, and Perez. I want to compliment you on your one-two punch of podcast between Who's Who and Fire and Water. It's a nice comparison of then and now. Thanks for such a great show again, guys. Keep up the great work. Fan the flame and ride the wave, Kyle Benning. And then he has to throw in, P.S., Composite Superman rocks. Oh. 25 exclamation points. And then he follows up again with, okay, not really. He's a stupid concoction. But you have to admit at least he is visually appealing. I think we have to admit nothing. Um, <laughs> but uh, we are going to give Kyle the uh, Yellow Dot Award. Or we kind of pick like one letter of someone who writes something particularly interesting. Everyone, almost all the comments we get are, are interesting, but we really appreciate that. Um, very heartfelt story, and it was great. I, I really enjoyed reading it. So, Kyle, enjoy your Yellow Dot Award. Yay! Um, we got another comment from Martin Gray, another great podcast chaps. One little point, Gunner and Sarge weren't paired up for who's who to save space. They were partners in the strip with Pooch. <laughs> And, and now we know about Pooch. <laughs> I was I, I wasn't able to sleep at night knowing I gave out wrong Pooch information. <laughs> um, we got another message from Luke Jack and Eddie, of course. Um, he says, "I think Rob wants Hawkwoman and Mira to team up because they both have red hair." Bingo. Uh, uh, I want them to team up for another reason. The red hair is just a bonus. There we go. And then he said, "Sorry, this is so late, and sorry that you guys didn't care for my exit tag idea, but good show anyway." <laughs> it's not that we didn't care for it. it we tried it. We genuinely, we did, we if we really it. didn't we like it, if we didn't like it, we wouldn't even tried it. Yeah. We tried it. It Absolutely. just didn't didn't fly. Now it's nice that both uh, we heard from Doug Wizzywig and uh, Luke Jacanetti here because uh, there are Hawkman guys. You know, there yeah. are our go-to Hawkman guys, and both of them came in about the whole ninth metal, nth metal thing. Yep. Uh, we got another message from Philemon. Boring. There is nothing boring about the Forever People except maybe how when they are transported to the planet Add-on, even though they are in the middle of a war with Darkseid, they. They just give up and go exploring instead of searching for a way back into the fight. Oh, you said I was boring. Well, that's probably true. <laughs> and 
then he gives us, as he calls it, his boring thoughts on issue 10. Um, <laughs> did, we call, did we call him boring? I don't know. Call that. I don't know. Well, you tend to say, oh, well, they mentioned this, so I stopped reading. So. Well, you can read into that what you want. He writes, all three Perez entries are stunningly beautiful, as is the Ordway Hippolyta. Sad you didn't make more mention of the recent Human Target TV show. Uh, that's because I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it either. I heard it was pretty, I heard it was pretty good. Me too, but didn't... then it was canceled before I even got a chance to watch it. So, you know, it wasn't for lack of, you know, respect. It just didn't, I just never saw it. If it was on, I don't know if it's on DVD. If it's on DVD, I'd give it a shot. But you know, um, anyway, we also got comments, of course, from the on the Aquaman Shrine as well. Mike Gillis popped up immediately to say, "Sorry to disillusion you, Rob, but from Hulkman's first appearance in Flash Comics number one." And then he quotes the whole Ninth Metal thing. He he posted that about three minutes after the episode went up. So I'm not sure how that <laughs> Mike did that, but he did. Um, Siskoi left a comment. Uh, on on Aquaman Shrine, Sugar and Spike really should have been included, especially since there are plenty of non-DCU features in the book, especially super, uh, SF features from Atari Force to Spanner's Galaxy. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Sugar and Spike absolutely deserve to be in there, and they never were. It never got corrected. They never appeared in any of the updates. It's ridiculous. You know, it's kind of funny. Is we got in a fight about that last we time. We did. I mean, a legitimate, full-on yelling match. Yes. Well, I yelled at and... you. You didn't yell at me. I yelled at you. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, like, almost immediately, like, as the episode went up, there were, like, all these things went up on Twitter. Like, people saying, like, Mommy, Daddy, stop fighting, you know, with the hashtag Firewater Podcast. <laughs> That's right, because I put you know, it in just... the show notes. I put that you and I almost get into a fight over Sugar and Spike. Right. So, it's just, that was, was kind of uh, happy. Now, by the way, folks, we're not... Uh, as we have always said with who's who feedback, we're not covering everything. We're not going to hit all the Twitter. We're not going to hit all the Facebook. And so don't feel left out if your name doesn't get shouted. It doesn't mean we don't didn't see your comment. It's just this thing's already we're clocking what two forty five at this point yeah. I think. So we're we're not trying to shortcut anybody, but we we gotta cut somewhere off. Yeah, we, yeah, really. Said. We would if we could, we would read all of it. And we are trying to find better ways of getting more of the feedback into the show. But the who's who shows we want to keep it. Like one issue behind, you know, like keep the you know comments for ten and nine and back, or nine and ten that kind of thing. So we have to kind of edit it down a little bit. So um, we did get another kind of the comment from Diablo Frank. He says between Roy Thomas and Mike Barr, eighty six percent of all pun names were generated for characters featured in Who's Who. This is, <laughs> this is quite the stupor group. <laughs> Point of fact, most everything terrible about nineties comics started with Jack Kirby and his imitators, followed by surface elements of Michael Golden and Art Adams. McFarlane sucked on Infinity Inc., except when an inker properly hogtied him, but that still failed to prevent his criminal abuses of graphic design and wonk-ass panel layouts and extraneous elements in the gutter's bleed space. I was never a fan, but he was objectively better by the time he started on the Hulk and earned his legend status on Spider-Man. Too bad he's a crooked, obnoxious tool who spent more time with his legal counsel than at a drawing table. Oh, my God. So, not a fan. And he also, he also wrote, I had a Hercules figure from the Remco Warlord line that came with an unnecessary plastic staff where an organic wooden twig off the ground would have been best. The figure was also in pure loincloth mold, near identical from the neck down with every other toy in the line. Simonson did a neat redesign that only got a couple or three issues of exposure. Can I have Showcase Presents, please? What a fantastic creative pedigree. Absolutely. <laughs> Dig, you guys should find Hercules Unbound. That is a really fun book. Very shortly lived, but really fun book. Um, we got an email from another new fan, Carlos Chuck Rodriguez. 
Uh, he mentions, among other things, I first discovered Who's Who back in 6th grade, 86-87, without knowing what it was. A friend of mine had brought some comics to class, brave kid, and a few of the issues he had were Who's Who. <laughs> I distinctly remember the Batman entry reading about him marrying Catwoman and laying down his life and was totally confused, especially when I saw a second entry for Batman that had a different history. I was really intrigued with the format of the books as it didn't resemble any comic I'd ever seen, and I always remembered that. That's a great little thing to really think about, that Husu doesn't look like any other comic before or since. That's um, true. Yeah, and they've kept it that way. Uh, he writes, I love the show, and I look forward to listening to everyone. It's even made me want to pull out my issues and relive that wonderful time in DC's history. Keep up the great work, and I will keep on listening. Thank you, Carlos, Chuck Rodriguez. Really appreciate it. We love hearing yeah. from new fans, especially. That's awesome, man. Welcome to the show. Absolutely. Uh, we got another one, of course, from Jack Dower. I'm going to jump right to his question of the week. You mentioned wait, 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 wait. You, you, you can't cut out his penguin references. There's got to be some oh, in here, right? I feel like I can. You know what? I don't know if there is any. He finally might have skipped one for once. Um, you mentioned how things he was, he was, he was drinking. <laughs> you mentioned how things were ignored or added when needed. Is there anything in the Aquaman or Firestorm entries that you would add or delete? Um, with Aquaman, not specifically. I mean, I think he deserved two pages, but that's kind of my hobby horse. I just feel like all the Silver Age Titan characters. Uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, uh, Hawkman, Aquaman, they all deserve two pages, you know? Uh, so I just feel you could have gotten more Aquaman history by giving him two pages because he deserved it. So I can't think of anything specifically I would have added. I'd have to go back and read the, the, the entry. But, um, you know, he's been he's been around for like 30 years at that point and was a major founding member of the Justice League. So, you know, hey, give the guy two pages for God's sakes. I think, I think, right, it, I think Atlantis could have gotten one page. Yeah, I totally agree about that. Now, let me ask you, what about Firestorm? Did he deserve two pages? I think he did because there was a lot of history crammed into that space. Yes, it was definitely too crowded. I mean, almost his whole entry was just the issue one. Yeah. I think it, I think at a certain – I mean, they said who's who – and we talked a little bit with Bob Greenberger, and he said that these issues of who's who sold consistently, you know, regardless of – maybe not this issue – but uh, most of them sold consistently, <laughs> and and he said that when they expanded the series from twenty four to twenty six, they got no argument about it. So, you know, to me, it's like, well, maybe they could have done like twenty eight and given a couple people a little more space. You know, a couple of the bigger characters. So, that's all. See, it's interesting. Like my first reaction was, no, Firestorm probably didn't deserve two pages, um, just because he wasn't big enough. But the more I think about it, actually, in nineteen eighty five, one of their biggest sellers. Yeah, it was one of their biggest sellers. It was in the 40s where it was really, you know, uh, the, the series was in the issues in the 40s when it was huge. He, had, he was just had been in Super Friends for a season. Uh, he had the toy out there. So yep. I was like, oh, you know what? he was pretty big deal at this point. Yep. So uh, he probably could have deserved two pages. And from a space-wise, Jack, to answer, yes, that's what I would want. Because Firestorm, almost the entire entries is just how he became Firestorm. Uh, it's complex history. You know, the, the, the alter ego information is double because it's two people. You know, it, it, it would have benefited from more space to breathe and just tell a little more about the character's personality and some of his adventures after that. That's, that's what was missing. And then he ends, ends it with, P.S., was He-Man part of the DC Universe at this time? I know he teamed up with Superman at some point. I would have loved to see him in the H issue. Uh, I mean, yeah, he was technically the DC Universe and that he's, as you point out, he met Superman. But DC didn't own him, and so therefore he wasn't in the book. I don't know what the thing is with Atari Force. Clearly, Atari owned some of those characters and not others, which is why some of them are in Who's Who and some are not. Um, so I don't know what the what the legal hair splitting of that is going on, but DC did not own any of the Masters of the Universe, which is why they don't appear in Who's Who. 
There you go. And that's why uh, Global Guardians was able to appear, but the Super Friends... Well, I guess, well, Zana, I, I think Zana Gina didn't appear because they didn't own it, I think. They, they don't say that, but I think that was probably part of it, too. I, I th- no, they had to own the Wonder Twins. They appeared in the comic. They first appeared in the comic. They, they appeared in the comic before the cartoon? Yeah, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm getting that wrong, but they appeared There's in no the comic. There's no way. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think they own the Wonder Twins. Okay, well, if they, I just, I'm thinking, you know, they were owned by Hanna-Barbera. Really? Or whoever, whoever did that series. I think it was Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure DC owned them. I'm sure right. um, I said we got um, another we got another email, a very long email from Chris Franklin or to Chris, which is always great. Um, trip Herring through a couple of his comments. He writes, I'll be honest, I never read Hawk, son of Tomahawk. As a kid reading Who's Who, I couldn't fathom how Neil Diamond was the son of Tomahawk. But now I have to admit he's cool looking, even the outfit still makes no sense. Thorn's art here looks more Alex Toth like than usual. Yes, I love that drawing. Never get tired of talking about it. Hop Harrigan. Okay, this will blow your mind. Apparently, though this apparently obscure, forgotten character had not only had his own movie serial, but a radio show that ran from 1942 to 1948. I knew about the movie serial. For some reason, I just blanked at the time and didn't mention it, but the radio show was completely news to me. And that's six years. That's a good run. That, I think that ran longer <laughs> than... I think that, that six years is longer than Superman ran. So uh, I, I'm a fan of old-timey radio stuff, so I, I, I want to go find that. I'm sure the show is not that exciting because the character itself is not that exciting. But I, I am cu- curious that, like, you know, why that character of, of all the others got, you know, sort of transferred into other mediums. Um, um, there's a comment here about Harlequin because I had mentioned how no- Marty Nodell, the creator of Green Lantern, drew Harlequin, and I said that was kind of his cancellation prize for not getting to write, draw Alan Scott, but he wrote back, don't forget, guys, Martin Nodell drew the Green Lantern chapter of Shag's favorite comic, All-Star Squadron, annual number three, around the same time. He actually inked it as well, but the powers that be at DC decided they needed Joe Giella to re-ink it. Interesting. Mm. Uh, he also mentions, glad you liked my thrift story, which is what you mentioned in the last episode about finding Who's Who Book 10 at like a thrift store with a grease marker written on it for half price or something. It's that fun. was a great story. Yeah, it is. It's fun to share such tales. Another thing I recall about Who's Who was how my friends and I used to pour over the entries and declare who was cool and who was lame. And if, uh-huh. and if we'd ever seen or heard of them before. Another odd thing we did basically was do a Who's Who Fantasy League. Let me explain. Whenever a toy line came out with a new catalog or card back every year, me and about five other friends would pick which characters we wanted to be, and it stuck. I was forever Duke, Optimus Prime, He-Man, Matt Tracker, Batman, you name it. Hey, most of the toys were mine, <laughs> so I got first pick. I was say, he's all the cool dudes. Yeah, really. We applied the same logic to Who's Who and the Marvel Universe Handbook, claiming characters we thought had potential, whether they had an action figure or just got pulled into our live-action role-play. In some cases, the characters we picked from Who's Who did make it into toy lines later, like Orion and Mr. Miracle and the Superpowers line. I'm not sure any other kids were that strict with those types of things, but we were really serious about it. Another great episode, uh, guys, and feel free to stop by and get the Play-Doh out anytime. Chris Franklin. Dude, I'm on my way. My vacation, mm-hmm. I'm going to your house. Um, yeah, I, I just feel bad, because clearly he probably got stuck as the Mary Man, yeah, or Awkward Man in most times, probably. So. <laughs> Had to make up for it for having being all the cool toy guys. You got to be, you'd be Batman. Jeez, that, that, you put up a lot of lame guys to be Batman. Um, right. So that's going to wrap up the feedback. And thanks, guys. And please keep writing us. As, as always, the email address is firewaterpodcast at comcast.net. And you can always leave comments on the Aquaman Shrine Firestar Fame as well. We love all the feedback. We really, really love it. And even though we don't get a chance to read all of it on the air, we do read every bit of it all the time. So uh, we really appreciate it. Absolutely, and if you if you're on the social medias, please use the hashtag 
FW Podcast. Now, I know that's uh, the Fire and Water Podcast, which is technically a different show than Who's Who, but, you know, it's all in the same family. So, Pound FW Podcast on Twitter or uh, Google Plus, things like that. So, you can find Aquaman Shrine on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle, Aquaman Shrine. You can find Firestorm Fan also in the same places. Uh, you can find Firestorm Fan also on Google Plus and Tumblr. And I've, we've said it once before. Let's say it again. What is the Tumblr for the show, Rob? Fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Awesome. So, folks, check it out. And um, um, something else I just wanted to mention before we go wrap it up, even though the song, the, the show is two hours and forty-five minutes so far. Um, by the time most of you hear this, we're recording this a little earlier than we normally do. So, by the time you hear it, it should be around Monday, July eighth. Um, by then, my Kickstarter campaign for the Ace Killer Volume Two will be just a week away from finishing. And at the time of recording, uh, we are eighty-seven percent funded. Which is great. We are, you know, definitely going to make our goal of four thousand dollars, which is tremendous. I'm very, very proud that so many people um, have pledged to it, and and uh, we've gotten a lot of new people, which is really great. We've gotten a lot of pledges from people who just have discovered it for the first time and just like what they see, which is very, very rewarding. Um, but there is something I wanted to mention, and this is sparked by a comment that Darlin Tracy made because she hears she's in the room with me when I'm recording these shows. Poor, 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 <laughs> poor girl. Poor girl. And so she hears me talk, and she has said... Well, the, the, the worst half is she can only hear you. She can't hear me. Anyway, uh, <laughs> she pointed out that while I do plug Ace Kilroy, like with every episode, I haven't really given, as she puts it, uh, people a reason to care. Um, because it's sort of like we just mention it, and I don't really explain why, you know, I care about it as much as I do. And I, that's always because I always feel a little sheepish about plugging my stuff so relentlessly on the show. I feel like people come here to hear Shag and I talk about comics and stuff, and, you know, it's not meant to be a, a thing where we're just you know, shilling our stuff. But, you know, I make an exception for this because this is a special case. So if if will give me a minute here, I just wanted to, to talk about this briefly, about why I care about this so much. Um, some of you that I've been friends with uh, – you know, outside of the Alchemy Shrine or outside of the show and I've been friends with before then, you know, they know that I've most for most of my life I was a freelance artist. And that was really my life's career. Obviously I went to the Kubert School to learn to be an artist and things like that. And uh, that was my my life's goal and my career. And for ten year after ten years of struggling to become a freelance illustrator, I became one in my early thirties. And for ten years I managed to maintain that life. And um, during the last couple of years it really that career just went totally in the toilet um, between the economy being bad and some other things. The, the, the whole notion of being a freelance artist just became completely financially unsustainable and also no fun, just no fun. And so it took me a long time to sort of learn that I had to give it up. It just was sort of ruining my life and making me miserable and making my family miserable. And, and I just couldn't keep up with it. So uh, I was fortunate enough to land a job a couple of months ago at a at a place that um, is not that far from the house. We're very fortunate, and it's a it's a. I don't want to get too deep into what we do, but it's a company that basically is involving in the, the movie trailer business. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a you know I get to like watch movie trailers a lot for my for my job, which sounds pretty good. Um, Jeez. Yeah, it's 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 a nice job. I have some some I have a friend there that was there first, and he helped me get the job, and it's a very relaxing atmosphere, and it, it, I'm very very fortunate to have this job. But it's not creative. It's not a creative job at all. And um, part of the reason 
that I haven't gone completely crazy because I am a creative person and I have that need is I have these other projects that I do. And this show is one of them. Um, you know, the Aquaman Shrine is, is one of them, and Ace Killword is one of them, and Hey Kids Comics is one of them. I have, I'm a creative person. I have that need to be creative and, and to put things out there for people to enjoy, presumably. And Ace Killword is one of those things. And it is one of the things, maybe the thing I'm the most proud of that I've been involved with, which is why that um, I care so much about it and then I want it to succeed. I have more ideas in my head for Ace Kilroy than I have for anything else. I have literally probably 30 years' worth of Ace Kilroy stuff in my head. And it's just a matter of, yeah, I mean, I, and in every possible medium, um, at any given point, I'm writing th- like three different Ace Kilroy projects all at once. And um, it's all a matter of funding it. That is the only thing stopping this from going forward is funding because I'm doing it independently and there's no other way to do it other than to get the support of people that hopefully either just enjoy it for what it is or want to support independent comics. So um, if you are so inclined, uh, when you hear this, we'll have about six or seven days left to our Kickstarter campaign. Go to kickstarter.com. You can find Ace Kilroy there or go to acekilroy.com and there's a link to the Kickstarter campaign, consider pledging. And if not, spread the word. You know, tell a friend and say, you know what, hey, I have this friend that likes old-timey newspaper strips. Maybe he'll like this. Um, I'm very fortunate that even though that big part of my life has gone away where I'm no longer a creative person in my day-to-day life, I've found these other projects of which, like I said, this podcast is one that really give me a lot of personal satisfaction and luckily, the podcast doesn't cost much to do. The Shrine doesn't cost much to do. The book won't cost that much to do. Ace Killway does cost a little bit to do, um, which is why we need the help. So if you wouldn't mind, consider pledging. This will probably be the last time I even have to talk to you about it, because after that, the campaign will be over. So um, I guess I'm going to end the plug right now. Well, I was just going to say one more thing. I mean, Rob just explained to you why Ace Kilroy is in part important to his heart and soul. It, I, I do want to plug to you, if you go beyond that, you know, and why you should should pledge, I mean, it's a fun read. I mean, go, go beyond how important it is to Rob, even, you know, at, at his core. It's also, as a reader, you're going to enjoy it. It's in, what's the spin on it? You know, it's Indiana Jones meets the Universal Monsters? Essentially, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's fun stuff. So... Helps helps an artist meet his creative potential. At the same time, have a, read a good, fun comic, man. So, go on out there. Check out the Kickstarter. Even if Rob's met his goal by the time you go there, the more they can raise, the more that this thing can go on. Yeah. And by support yeah. and by supporting Ace Kilroy, you're helping to support this show. Absolutely. So, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jack. Yeah. All right. All right, folks. Uh, until next time, we're taglineless, and uh, we will, <laughs> we will uh, talk to you on Who's Who next month. In the meantime, come back and check out Fire and Water in a week or so. Absolutely. Enjoy your Who's Who, folks. All right. Bye. Bye. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia. 
that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Oh man, we forgot Slipknot. Presenting Hop Harrigan, America's ace of the airways. The X4 calling control tower. The X4 calling control tower. Standing by. Control tower back to the X4. Wind will be sailing 1200. All clear. Okay. This is Hop Harrigan coming in. Yes, it's America's ace of the airways. Coming in for another transcribed episode in the adventures of Hop Harrigan. 